You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Superman Edition. He stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I guess that means he stands for, like, pornography and corrupt late-stage capitalism. I mean, what's the American way, guys? Jake and Ben are falling out of their seats laughing. You can't <laughs> That's hear That's why right, we can't answer. I, yeah, I had to edit it all out. Like, Jake is gasping for air right now. That's why he's not talking. Jake is a big Superman fan. He's probably insulted on Superman's behalf. I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. Hopefully, Jake doesn't cast me into the Phantom Zone. Listen, we're talking about Superman. Where you belong. What's that? Where you belong. <laughs> the Phantom Zone. <laughs> Death seems preferable. <laughs> That's what I've decided, having researched <laughs> the mythology behind the Phantom Zone randomly. It's like you become a ghost, basically, and you're just stuck in stasis, and you can see everything that's happening in the real world, but you can't affect it, and you're just like that forever. Although sometimes on Krypton, they will sentence you to it for a while and then you know take you out like jail or something like that. But I think Zod and Ursa and What's-His-Face were just going to basically be stuck like that forever, which doesn't really seem like that nice of a punishment. I think in the lore, like Jor-El, he's such a kind, compassionate dude that he comes up with the Phantom Zone. He discovers it and then Better says, than capital punishment. we should do this instead of capital punishment. But if I had a choice between being trapped in stasis forever or death, I think I might choose death. I think probably most people would yeah. choose death. But in any case, maybe they weren't thinking that hard about it when they came up with it. Well, you're obviously not trapped in stasis forever if there's a way out. That's true. Yeah. So there's hope. There's always hope. Yeah, but that's almost like a greater torment. Yeah, that's torture. Perpetual yeah. hope. Yep. That's, yeah, that's yeah. pretty nasty. It's like that pit that Batman gets thrown into in whatever that <laughs> awesome... I was just going to say that. <laughs> Were you really? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, folks, uh, we're talking about Superman, the movie that showed you that a man could fly. That was its tagline. You will believe a man can fly. And this is part of our superheroes journey that we are going on. You, our lovely patrons, got us to the place where we could talk about Superman, Superman 2, Batman, the 1989 one, of course, and then Batman Returns, all kind of seminal, defining superhero movies. Arguably, Batman is a little bit more influential on what superhero movies ultimately became for a long time. But Superman was the one where. It was like, hey, we can do superhero movies now. As we'll talk about, nobody thought this was a good idea. Nobody thought that you could even take a superhero movie and make it into a movie. It was just ridiculous, which is why they're really overcompensating by hiring Brando and Hackman and Mario Puzo to write the script. And they're like, ah, guys, this is, we're adults. We swear we're doing something good. Brando wanted to be here. Brando wanted $4 million, is what, actually, Brando wanted a lot more than $4 million. And he got it, but he didn't get enough to come back for part two. Anyway, folks, this should be an exciting episode. So much to talk about. It's a great story, the making of this movie. It's an interesting movie. We'll talk about whether it's a good movie or not. We were actually just talking about this off mic. It's certainly an iconic movie with many good things. And I don't know, maybe it's a great movie. I could see that argument. Maybe it's a bad movie. I could see that argument. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it all. Who's talking, you might ask? Well, look who's talking. It's me. I'm the Bruce Willis. Who else was in Look Who's Talking? 
You guys remember that N- franchise? Never saw I the, do, the, yeah. the babies. Was Kirstie Alley yeah. part of that franchise? Kirstie Alley was part of that franchise. I've never seen it. I still know that. May she rest in peace. If they do a Cheers reunion, they will not be able to get Kirstie Alley. She and Coach are both dead. Anyway, on that note, I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. We've got Ben right there. He's a preacher. He's a teacher of Superman. Very He's good. Super, super heroic being himself. Yep. And Ben, why don't you introduce the most heroic of all of us, a man currently wearing a red cape and blue tights, I assume. He's, yeah. He's got clothes over them, so it's hard to tell. It is hard to tell. I bet. Yeah. It's just guess. It's a good guess. He's Jake Mensel, the pastor who's a master of Superman. Yeah. That's you. Hey. Welcome, guys. Should we do super baggage first? What baggage do you guys bring to... This is going to be a lot of context and setting this in its historical time and all that sort of thing. So, but let's just get our own personal stuff out of the way first. Mm. Ben, Nathan, I grew up watching Superman two, a recorded copy from the it's like a TV VHS recording of Superman two. Was it one of those ones where they added a bunch of extra footage like they used to <laughs> do in those days? I have no idea because I don't think I've ever seen it not from that recording. I've only seen clips of it. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I remember watching it over and over again, along with a TV edit of Terminator with bad stuff taken out. I mean, still violent like Terminator, but so those were the two movies that I had on VHS and would watch over and over again. That's what I remember. So I know that I must have seen Superman, the original at some point, but I, as I rewatched this movie, I was like, I hardly remember this. I remember that as a kid, this was really boring. And there were no bad guys to punch or anything cool like that. And that's what I wanted as a kid. And so I didn't really care about the original Superman. You liked Zod and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had the city superhero battle long before cinema really tried to do that again, if memory serves. Like that, it was awesome. These guys flying and punching each other through billboards. Yeah, throwing cards. Just all this crazy stuff. It was like, it was the stuff. You've got a saran wrapped S. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was really cool, too. <laughs> You've got Superman violently murdering Zod. <laughs> that was also really cool. <laughs> no one cared. <laughs> Kneel before Zod. Yeah, that was a great, very triumphant moment. You've got other weird and unpleasant stuff. It's Anyway, we'll get to that movie some other time. But that's my main Superman baggage. Do you have a relationship with the character? I wouldn't say much of one, no. You're more of a Marvel guy, if memory I'm a Marvel guy. I didn't really read Superman comics. When Superman Returns came out, I was a decently big fan. Saw it several times. Liked it quite a bit. Superman Returns, I would say, is another kind of, sort of like this movie we're going to talk about. It's boring and stately, except it's a little more stately, actually, than the Superman movie in some ways. Maybe that's getting ahead of ourselves, but I don't know if Superman Returns is a good movie or not. I haven't seen it in years, but I just remember liking it, even and liking Superman in it. Mm, and then you get to Man of Steel. Yes. Which I do. never, I ignored. Then I watched it. On the internet, I streamed it at some point. I was like finally curious enough to actually see it. I don't know why I didn't want to see it in theaters. It's like, yeah, that was fun. It's quite dumb. And then the rest of the Snyder history, listeners of this podcast will know. Well, I'll just do mine real fast because I think Jake probably has the most extensive history with Superman. (laughs) I had a similar relationship with the movies in that I remember really liking Superman 2 as a kid because, like you said, it's just got a cityscape and being leveled and super heroics (laughs) and violent conflict, whereas the Mm -hmm. first one, the action is more like Superman saves things, some of which I thought was pretty Mm -hmm. cool and which which I appreciate much more now. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was like, I want to see him punch somebody. Yep. So... 
the thing that I principally remember about this first Superman movie is the train gag when he makes himself a rail so that the train can go over him. I always mm-hmm. thought that that was really fun. And I was vaguely aware of eh, this Lois and Superman stuff is obviously something that my parents appreciate. Like it's there's something sophisticated and adult and worldly going on here that ultimately, as I watch it now, isn't that sophisticated or adult or worldly. It's quite charming. But for a kid, it was like, this felt like Tracy and Hepburn or something like that. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's just like, I, there's wit here. There's things that my parents are chuckling at that I don't really get. So, so there was that level of Superman. Like, I understood there were things that I didn't understand, which was not really my experience with Batman or with any of the other heroes. If He felt a little bit more adult. I think from a fairly young age, I would have said the same thing that a lot of lame emo kids say which is that batman is my guy and superman is just boring too much of a boring straight arrow to really like or appreciate so yeah i read lots of batman comics i don't think i ever have read no i have read Superman. i finally read grant morrison's run the all-star superman many mm-hmm. but that was like when i was an adult like mm-hmm. within the span of being friends with you guys maybe even with this in the span of doing podcasts together i've read mm-hmm. that so it wasn't like a big influence on me when i was a kid it was more something i wanted to go back and enjoy mm-hmm. now but so yeah i i don't know that i've had that big of a relationship with superman i remember very much not liking superman returns it felt sour and mean-spirited and i just remember superman being stabbed with a green glowy thing and being <laughs> sad and having a child out of wedlock and yeah. just all this stuff that didn't really feel very superman to me but then I loved Man of Steel, not because I thought it was a good Superman movie. I knew it was crap as a Superman movie, and I knew it was crap as a movie, but I just thought in terms of pure spectacle, just leave it to someone as tasteless as Zack Snyder to ask and answer the question of what would happen if two super beings actually battled their way through New York or whatever, Mm -hmm. Metropolis, a big city. And so the 9-11 times 1,000 mass destruction stuff I thought was pretty impressive even if it's just morally like superman what are you doing (laughs) so yeah i enjoyed that movie but not really as a superman movie just as a thing and i think i like superman better now i think i have some appreciation for the character i think coming to this movie i appreciated many things about superman and about certainly about what's his face is christopher reeve's performance as superman that i didn't really get before and i understand how this character works. I think if you'd asked me when I was a teenager, I would have said Superman just basically doesn't work. He has no vulnerabilities either as a person or as a super being, as a conceit. And so there's, there's nothing fun there. There's no drama there, actually. And now I understand how a Superman story can be told. And I'm excited to see James Gunn tell a Superman story. But I think I would have just snootily said there's no such thing as a good Superman story. Like it's just the comics have moved past that. It was the first and they forgot to include anything to humanize him and it was dumb. But I don't feel that way now. That's just my history with the character. Obviously, I did weirdly grow up watching Superman 4 many, many times. I don't know if we owned a VHS or something. I've seen Superman 4 a lot. And Superman 4 is obviously famously derided movie really bad but i thought it was cool when i was five he fights atomic man they fight on the moon i mean it's none it's just the corniest stuff you can find youtube clips if you haven't seen it it's really bad but i thought it was cool when i was five i also thought lots of things were cool when i I was five i think i saw that one when i was like 11 for the first time Mm -hmm. and i was like this is so boring (laughs) it's really bad 
But at five, I could see. Yeah. I saw Superman 3 and like that when I was a kid, unfortunately. I've never seen on Superman 3 all the way through. Yeah. I've seen some clip that the internet likes to bring up as, this horrified me when I was a kid, where a woman gets turned into a computer. I've seen that clip a billion times because it goes, it makes the rounds on Twitter every <laughs> once in a while, along with other sort of, what was the scariest thing that scared you when you were a kid? So, whatever. Superman... This, it's really sad what happened to this franchise, but we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Jake, your super history. I grew up with Superman. My strongest memories of Superman are before my parents' divorce. So Superman was just a big part of this particular Superman. It was a big part of my childhood, I guess. Like Superman, the movie specifically. Yeah, the movies. Yeah, I, I was never a comic book geek. I never did any of that stuff. I thought that was for losers. And so never, ever, ever have read a comic book in my life. Not a graphic novel, none of that stuff. Just kind of always made fun of the kinds of kids who did. But Superman, these movies, I identified very much with my dad as a kid growing up. I'd wear red cowboy boots around the house and had Superman pajamas and stuff like that. Would get up on the back of the sofa and pretend I was flying. Dad was a, at that time, was a police officer. So I identified and who shared some just physical, just like he doesn't, he, if you look at pictures of my dad from that time and Christopher Reeve, there's a lot of just physical similarities, just in dark hair and the glasses and a, a good physique. And so just sort of like identified him with my dad. So I loved those movies for that reason. It was just a father-son sort of thing for us. And I hate the Snyder version of Superman. I think Nathan goes off and craps all over that Guy Ritchie King Arthur, because it's not Arthur. Right. I don't care if it's a good movie or a fun movie. It's not Arthur, and I hold Arthur special, and so it can't, it's not allowed to be good. Mm -hmm. I feel about that way, or have felt about that way, about what Snyder did with Superman. I don't care that it's a good spectacle. It's not Superman, so. Totally fair. Kind of I mean, also, even on its own terms, it's a bad movie. Yeah, there's nothing, mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything redeeming about it, and there's plenty of other places to get spectacle, so. I just don't care. I would only quibble with one thing. I think the opening sequence on Krypton with Russell Crowe is awesome. That may be true. I, I might have been there for that 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 much, but you get to the play like I don't know when I checked out of that movie, but probably somewhere around the time when the Kevin Costner goes running for the dog. Well, there was that, but then there's also just and I realize some of these seeds are in the Lester movies at the very least, but there's like the truckers being boorish and slapping the waitress on her right. mind and stuff. And then Superman has destroyed his truck. Like uh, the guy walks outside and is, there's just a lot of, as we like to say, othering and yeah, it's very Superman's mean and breathy. It's mean and, and passive aggressive and just not sort of like, I just love, I maybe rediscovered is that I just, I love, Christopher Reeve? Yeah, just Christopher Reeve is awesome. Like his portrayal of Clark Kent is super fun and sweet. And his portrayal of Superman is sweet for the most part. It does have edge in places that you don't remember or that you like gloss over. It's not consistent. Like they're not no. they're not trying to say anything one way or another. They're just doing a thing. And so yeah. There's places where it contradicts itself. But overall, yes, he's the guy that's going to rescue Lois from a helicopter and then say air travel. Statistically speaking, air travel is still <laughs> the safest way to fly. Right. He's going to do <laughs> things like that. He's going to say, excuse me, sir, when the guy with the gun, uh, you don't want to do that. You know, and he's going <laughs> to 
frame it so where he saves the day, catches the bullet, and gets also, frisky out of the tree. Yeah, all of it. So that's the Superman I love. The Superman who's going to get the cat out of the tree and who's going to be a bumbling, wholesome farm boy from Kansas, but who's got some real charm and charisma to him too when he turns it on. Watching him flip those switches and watching him do that because he has a code or a higher principle, I think that's what's lovable or one of the things that's lovable about him as a character. And I mean, we can talk about all kinds of things about him and Lois. It's the same as Indiana Jones and Marion. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's nothing likable about this person. And there's no <laughs> reason this person would like, but the movie simply decided because mm-hmm. that's what's, how it's supposed to be. And I guess that's what's true to the comics or whatever. And we need a romance. And so, but well, there, there's so much that doesn't even in the lore that doesn't make sense. Can they be together? I guess so. But also, can they be together? Can they be together? And is he going to just stay the same and she's going to get old and die? There's just questions that probably right. the comics have answered. But yeah, well, there's two ways to approach like world building and lore. And this definitely falls into the at least the way this movie was approached falls into I think of it as sort of like the George Lucas camp and the Tolkien camp, mm-hmm. right? Tolkien mm-hmm. is going to actually, when he creates a world, every, the world's going to have its own internal logic. There's going to be a reason the elf culture developed the way that it did and elf architecture developed the way it did and the way that hobbit culture is going to develop the way it does and hobbit architecture is going to develop the way it does and there are going to be habits and things. And so all of this stuff, when you get to Hobbiton or when you get to Lothlorien or wherever you go, it's going to feel like this lived-in world. And if you were to ask Tolkien why any one thing is the way it is, he's got a reason. And then there's the George Lucas school, which is like, I intuitively know what I think is just really cool and fun. And I'm really tapped into my inner kid. And so I just follow my gut intuition and I create things that are maybe arbitrary, but feel fun. Mm -hmm. And then we can backfill it later. And there's a whole world of world building that follows that school that doesn't have anywhere near the intuition that George Lucas does. So when you get to a movie like this and you get to Krypton or you get to the Fortress of Solitude, it's like, well, we know this needs to feel foreign. This needs to feel alien. So it needs to feel otherly. And so it's just going to feel really cold and austere. And it's a, it has no internal logic. It just feels mm-hmm. cold and austere right. and clean and sterile because human is new. We needed something to contrast with the grime of 1970s metropolis, New York City. And the Norman Rockwell Smallville stuff. And the Norman Rockwell Smallville stuff. And so the obvious, simple, cheap answer is cold and sterile mm-hmm. and lifeless. Yep. And there's no internal logic to it at all. So even when the Fortress of Solitude is built, like you see Superman like having to like jump or take these awkward steps to right. get there's nothing intuitive about it. There's nothing yeah. within any kind of internal logic about it. And so it just feels lame. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole world of people that's at like the level of depth they go to in their world building. It just so happens that Lucas had a sort of magic touch for building things that actually worked on an intuitive level that could be backfilled with its own kind of internal logic mm-hmm. down the line. Also, and Lewis, a lot of comic Lucas books develop a, that way. I, think, I also think Lucas I think. was just enough of an academic that he read right, Joseph Campbell and he's like, how can I tap this into the most primal sort of fairy tale thing? Well, and, and he so, ripped off people. Yeah, He ripped off Dune. He ripped off Kurosawa. Kurosawa. He ripped stuff. off all kinds of other people yeah. who actually did the legwork. Yeah. And so 
there was that, and then there was his inner kid, and there was all that sort of thing. And I forget why I'm going here, but I think that there's a thinness to levels of this movie, both in terms of characterization and world building. But some of it really works well, and it has to do with just contrast. Yeah. So yeah, it's Christopher Reeve that is. I think maybe that's was my only point. Christopher Reeve's portrayal of Superman. That's the thing. He holds it all together for sure. And he holds it together. And part of why that works is the background. Mm-hmm. Well, Donner's not, I mean, I'm sure you'll get into this, but Donner's not an auteur like Lucas. Like Donner's not creating Superman, obviously. He's right. just using right. him. And then he's a studio guy who was a decent craftsman who can put things together. But he's, this is a movie with a big committee and a big production committee and all kinds of pressures going into it like you already know. I, I think that's true. And we'll get to this. I think Donner is actually the hero and mm. I think Donner actually left to himself would have made a more consistent film. Mm-hmm. I think the villains, as we'll talk about in detail, are Alexander and Ilya Salkind, the producers of this film, who cool. don't care about the lore, just want it. They are responsible for everything that we hate in the sequels after they canned huh. Donner and brought in Lester, who's just a comedy guy. They have a really campy sense of who Superman is, and they don't care. And I think Donner actually has a decent respect for the mythology, as we'll talk about. And he, you might actually accuse Donner of some of the boring stuff on the front end. Like, Donner wants to spend time in Krypton because he wants it to have the weight. And so it's like you combine Donner's sense of, well, this actually does have to have gravitas and it has to make sense with the Sulkins not caring and saying, get the movie done. And you have a movie that spends a lot of time setting up stuff that ultimately... Don't go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere and feels thin. You have 45 minutes of set dressing and backdrop, and then oh, now we're into a totally different story. And I guess it does work to tell. It is an origin story movie, and you're going to have that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. breaking a superhero origin story, being the first to do it, was always going to present its challenges. Yeah, there's, but, there's a lot that we can forgive this movie for. But that doesn't really translate across the years very well. But but yeah, I do agree with you. Ben Donner also, he's a craftsman. He doesn't have some big innate vision of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, is that all the baggage, Superman, super baggage that sure. we have? I think so. Okay. So, Ben, you're going to take us on a super journey across the, through the creation of Superman. Oh, boy. Let's, re- let's remember. Dun, 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 dun. One of the great 20th century American, I mean, Coca-Cola, Charlie Chaplin, Superman, Shell oil. I, I know I'm saying the most obvious thing, but this is an icon. This is part of our collective American myth. And it's important. It's important to how we understand ourselves and how we think of ourselves, how we think of heroes, how we think of the 20th century, how we think of the 40, the 30s, the 40s, all the way through. And the way our view of him changes is important to track. So Mm-hmm. It says a lot about us. I think that'll be that's an obvious thing to say, and it'll be obvious in what Ben's talking about. But I just I just want to say that from the very front, in case anyone's like, "Why are they going into?" Because it's really it's actually pretty important that I'd say knowing who Superman is, you could argue, is more important than knowing who Odysseus is, who was created four hundred or four thousand years ago. Superman, he's about how we think of ourselves. Anyway. Go mm-hmm. ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to give the history of DC as I go as well, because it, DC and Superman, DC Comics, they go together. Yes. <clears throat> so, start right out. DC. It's not called DC at first. It's National Allied 
Publications. In 1934, it's founded by a guy named Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. And this guy is an entrepreneur. He wants to get into the comics business. First up, publication is called New Fun, the big comics magazine. <laughs> New Fun? <laughs> New Fun. Marvel is going to... You'll hear this when we talk about Marvel Comics in our Spider-Verse episode. But Marvel, it, it starts out as something called Timely Comics. And superheroes are not what either company is going to do right at first. Westerns, adventure comics, funnies. But, you know, National Allied hires a couple guys named Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster to create their famous DC character we've all heard of, Dr. Occult! <laughs> 1935. I'm going to keep doing this, folks. I hope that you think it's really funny. I'm just going to keep, I'm just warning you. So, 1935, also known as the Ghost Detective, also known as Dr. Mystic. Can I just I, say, Dr. Occult, the Ghost Detective, sounds <laughs> awesome. Right? It's, pretty, it's actually cool. I want to read about him. Well, he's, this character is still around, investigates occult mysteries, wears a fedora and so on. Apparently, the earliest DC superheroes you know, to survive to the modern day. You did not have day. to say that he wore a fedora. I knew Dr. Occult wore a fedora. <laughs> did you? you can picture him? <laughs> I mean, I Well, I, I it sounds so. like you already did. If you look him up, he will look just like you imagine. <laughs> so he wasn't... I call him the first, or they call him, someone calls him the first, the earliest DC superhero. He's not fully superheroish, right? Not like archetypally a superhero, like Superman is right. going to be. Anyway, so Wheeler Nicholson, he's still going. He creates Detectives Comics magazine soon after with its famous character, Slam Bradley. I told you, I'm going to keep doing this. Slam Bradley was also created by Siegel and Schuster. Jerry Siegel, by the way, writer. Joe Schuster, illustrator. So. Major Wheeler Nicholson forms Detective Comics, Inc. He's like creating all these different brands and subsidiaries and companies. And this is how the comics and publishing business is at the time. It's just all these splintery things and this whole knot of relationships. But all these stories start with an entrepreneur, by the way. They yeah. always start with an entrepreneur. Yeah. They never start with some guy grew up and he just had a vision to create the uh, Walt Disney. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> well, this entrepreneur is not very good at what he does. He's just not very good at it. Major Willie Nicholson, he has debt problems. He has cash flow problems. So he's forced to take on some partners. One is his printer and distributor, Harry Donenfeld, who's Jewish. And also Harry Donenfeld's accountant, Jack Leibowitz, is also Jewish. By the way, Jerry Siegel is Jewish. Joe Schuster is Jewish. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, not Jewish. Well, we'll come back to this, but he's eventually forced out of Detective Comics because he's just not, he's not good at this. He's in debt. Meanwhile, his other, his national allied company goes bankrupt and Detective Comics, which is now owned by Leibowitz and Donenfeld, it's, they buy up national allied and Detective Comics is where we get the name DC, right? Basically. So Detective Comics now is this bigger thing and it starts a new magazine, Action Comics, mm. Action Comics number one. You get the OG of superheroes, I think you could say. That's right. It's Zatara. <laughs> All right. I'm done. I'm done. It's Superman, of course. Zatara, I think, is in there. Zatara is like a, a stage magician superhero. Also still around. Him, like in front of a crystal ball. <laughs> yeah. Like a, a turban. Or he's, no, not a turban. But he looks like top hat stage magician guy. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, but no, it's Superman. Siegel and Schuster create him. His first appearance. Action Comics number one, 1938. He's on the cover. Makes history. Lois Lane appears in the same issue, and so does some unnamed planet of Superman's origin later to be named Krypton. And it's a, a big seller. Superman's just a big seller. Right away, from here on out, Detective Comics Incorporated is going to be successful financially. So who were these guys? Right, Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, 
How did they come up with Superman? Well, they were friends. They're children of Jewish immigrants. They met in high school in 1932. They just start creating stuff together. Siegel's like, I want to write. Schuster's like, I want to draw. I want to illustrate. They love pulp stories like Tarzan and John Carter of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, both of them. Love comic strips. They loved the famous Little Nemo comic, if you guys have ever looked at that. Never understood it. Never understood why people liked it. It's very strange and hard to get into, for me at least. But it's strange yeah. and surreal, but one thing it is, is gorgeous. It is gorgeous, yeah. It's crazy. Listener, if you've never seen it, look up a panel online or something. It's quite striking. And like Nathan said, what in the world? They love adventure sci-fi movies. Joe Schuster is into fitness, the artist. He's into fitness. He collects fitness magazines to use as reference points for his art, right? So you can see all these influences coming into Superman. In 1933, which I think, I guess, is just out of high school, Siegel has his self-published magazine called Science Fiction, The Advanced Guard of Future Civilization. So that's the name of his self-published <laughs> magazine. And Schuster illustrates it. He writes a story called The Reign of the Superman, which is about a homeless bum who gets pulled into this experiment by an evil mad scientist to take an experimental drug and this bum gets all these telepathic powers and he uses them for evil he like kills the mad scientist and he's gonna take over the world but then the powers wear off and he realizes i'm gonna be going back to the breadline and da da i guess crime doesn't pay as superman so that's the story <laughs> there's not many copies of this magazine left as you might imagine these guys turn to comics next and they want to make it work they want they want to make money they're poor, and Siegel thinks, hey, what if we had like a Superman thing who was good instead of bad? I bet he could make a cool hero. And they go several, through several iterations of a Superman concept. He's a science experiment, like the bum, but instead of telepathy, he gets bulletproof skin and he fights crime. He's a scientist and adventurer from a distant planet. Ah, he's the child of a dying Earth sent back to our time by the last surviving man. It's, they just, they're trying to sell the Superman concept to newspaper publishers. That's where they think the money is. Newspapers are not having it, and they're like, this isn't really sensational enough. Then they come up with a comics magazine version. They shop that around. That doesn't work either. Siegel starts thinking, maybe I need an artist with some name recognition instead of my friend who's good, but no one knows who he is. So he starts quietly looking around for artists. Schuster finally finds out. They're like, he's like, dude, forget it. You do your own thing. They still work together, but he's like, I'm not helping you with Superman anymore. Just whatever. That doesn't work out. He has some, Siegel finds some interested artists and they shop it to their publishers, but it just doesn't work. Finally, on all this time, at some point in here, they're hired by our dude who flops out of the comics business, Major Wheeler Nicholson, and they're creating strips for him. And he's interested in Superman. He's like, hey, I'll, pu I'll publish it. And they're like, this guy sucks as a businessman. <laughs> he doesn't even pay us on time for our work. Like, Superman is our baby. We're not giving him our baby. But when he finally falls out of the business and the new owners have it and it's clear like these guys know what they're doing, they're finally like, well, at least someone will publish him. We're exhausted trying to find someone to publish Superman. So, okay, you can publish him. And then a star is born. And everything I mentioned earlier goes into Superman. Tarzan, John Carter, movie heroes played with lots of cool like Douglas Fairbanks who plays Zorro in, Ma in Mark of Zorro. They create the dual identity of Superman partly based on Zorro partly based on like the Scarlet Pimpernel, partly based on Harold Lloyd, the silent film star who wears glasses. Looks, and looks a lot like Clark Kent. Yeah. Looks a lot like Clark Kent. He's very meek, very mild. But then you trigger him, you get him in the right situation, and he starts climbing buildings and like being incredibly aggressive to do whatever needs to be done. And then, of course, you got the strongman physique of Superman. Well, Schuster's got all this fitness iconography in his brain. Superman's face is based on the face of Johnny Weissmuller, the most famous actor to portray Tarzan. 
The city of Metropolis gets its name from the famous German expressionistic sci-fi film Metropolis. These guys are just immersed in pop culture, just pulling everything in to create something that would become itself like a wellspring of pop culture. And by the way, the name Superman, you know, it comes from Nietzsche, right? But, but it was apparently common at the time to call people a Superman. There's no evidence that these guys read Nietzsche. People would say things like or write things like, that politician is a Superman. That athlete is a Superman. So it's a measure of Siegel and Schuster's success that when we hear the word Superman, we only think about Friedrich Nietzsche and his books. I'm oh, just kidding. We only think about Superman. Right. 1938, Superman debuts. It's only a year later that Detective Comics number 27 introduces Batman, one of the other most famous, most financially successful superheroes of all time, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And this is going to shock you, listener, but Kane and Finger are... They're Jewish. All these guys, all of these guys who successfully pilot DC, create Batman, create Superman, are Jewish. When we talk about the new Spider-Verse movie and Marvel Comics, you'll see a heavy Jewish influence there. Marvel is successful because of Jews. Comics is a Jewish-dominated industry. There's another Jew in our supercharged history of DC who's waiting in the wings. I want to introduce him now. His name is Max Gaines. He created this four-color pamphlet for publishing comics that's the direct ancestor of the modern comic book magazine format. He also created a comics line you've never heard of called All American Publications, and he did it in partnership with the owners of Detective Comics. And so his comics line acts basically like a subsidiary of DC. So he's going to originate superheroes like The Atom and The Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and Wonder Woman, which he'll co-create. And eventually those guys get subsumed by DC, like that his company gets bought out and those guys get subsumed. Fun little tangent here. All American Comics had a comic book called Picture Stories from the Bible. And Max Gaines, after he sells the rights to all his other stuff to Detective Comics, he retains the rights to that. He's like, I'm going to start a new company. I'm going to call it Educational Comics. Ah, EC Comics for short. And I'm going to so, quote, I'm going to quote, market comics about science, history, and the Bible to schools and churches, according to Wikipedia. But actually, EC Comics is known for other stuff because Max Gaines dies in a boating accident. His son, William, takes it over in 1947 and starts publishing edgy horror stories and starts saying EC actually stands for entertaining comics, guys. <laughs> publishing sci-fi stories with a political or social angle. Stories known for twist endings, really good artwork, often gruesome. It gave us Tales from the Crypt, for example. If you've ever heard of Two-Fisted Tales, that was a war comic that was anti-war, or at least not pro-war. These were quote-unquote mature comics, for better or worse. They also give us Mad Magazine. And Nathan, you've read some of these things. Yeah, I used to have several omnibuses of Tales from the Crypt of Vault and Fear and stuff like that. The artwork is absolutely gorgeous. The stories are pretty juvenile. It's always just like, some guy is a jerk for two thirds of the story so that he can get a really poetic, gory come up. And it's probably the most famous one is called Foul Play. And it's about a baseball pitcher that wants to go far. And so he poisons his rival. And then the team gets wind of the fact that he's murdered somebody. And they're like, we're going to deal with this our way. And then the final panels are this incredibly gruesome thing where they're all playing baseball. But it's like his organs are the the, the bases, and wow. they've got an arm for a bat, and they're using the skull as the ball. And, and the story again called Foul Play. <laughs> and so you spend like this boring two thirds of the story with the guy like ha, 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 being a jerk, murdering somebody. 
And then you get to this incredibly over the top. <laughs> I don't know if you were going to talk about this or not, but EC Comics is and Tales from the Crypt and all that is directly responsible for the moral panic of comics in the 1950s and the eventual comics code. Where no, I wasn't going to talk just, about Just this. like the ratings board, Hollywood was afraid, oh, the government's going to censor us, so we better start censoring ourselves. So they developed the ratings board, which we've talked about on this podcast before, or the censorship, the Breen office, which right. later became the MPAA, all that. <laughs> but comics did the same thing. So you, you see any comic from the golden age, and it'll have this little stamp on it that says approved by, I forget what it's called, the comics Approved by the comic code or something the like that. The comics code, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember those stamps. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And that just means we're self-censoring. So Tales from the Crypt actually died, or there's an incredibly lame run of horror comics through the 60s and 70s when they couldn't do anything cool because parents had been outraged by things like foul play, which is, again, incredibly gruesome. Very silly. Stephen King read all these comics when he was a kid. He is the direct air of this kind of mm -hmm. stuff just the idea they are influential in the horror field i realize it's a total tangent but just we can have we're going to take vampires out of transylvania and it'll be like a guy in small town america walks into a diner and there's a bunch of vampires and they're all they've got straws in people's necks and stuff like that it, it combines kind of mm -hmm. everyday americana with gruesome horror tropes in a way that was really influential for a generation so yeah. anyway yeah that's cool well it's terrible it's awesome. gross it's gross it's awesome yeah so yeah i'll go back to the main storyline now our main storyline so when siegel and schuster agree to let dc have superman they sign over the rights and that's just what was done at the time they're gonna regret it later <laughs> but in the meantime they have this 10-year contract with dc to write and draw it and they're well paid and you should remember this as I tell you more of their story. By the end of their contracted time at DC, together they had earned $400,000, which adjusted for inflation is about $6.5 million. So they were doing pretty well. Superman quickly gets himself a newspaper strip, 1939. That's where we meet Jor-El and Lara. And Action Comics keeps going with Superman stories. They introduce Superman's first big recurring villain, the Ultra Humanite. A terrifying villain that you no doubt know is a crippled old man who's, got, who's a super genius. And, <laughs> and then Superman gets his own comic book very shortly after, which was not a thing that superheroes got at the time. That was just not what you did. You published them in these omnibus things like action comics where they're alongside other stories. But he gets his own because DC is making bank and DC starts branching out into other media. So they've got a radio show that runs from 1940 to 1951. I've never heard this show, but I'm curious now because it's got 2,088 episodes that range from 15 minutes to a half hour long. Uh, 2,088 episodes. It's super popular. It's aimed at kids. This show gives us a bunch of stuff that we think of as basic Superman, like his ability to fly in episode two. It gives us Perry White and Jimmy Olsen and Kryptonite. Superman meets Batman and Robin for the first time on the show. It famously did an episode sometime later in its run where Superman battles the Ku Klux Klan, which apparently really worked. I mean, this is the lore anyway. It really worked as negative marketing for the KKK. Like nobody it, liked the KKK because right, yeah, 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 Superman. Yeah. That, that's what I mean. Because it included information from this Klan infiltrator, a guy named Stetson Kennedy, who's a famous civil rights activist who became, he went into the KKK as one of them, like a narc. He gave the Superman radio show all, like information about their rituals and code words stripped away some of the mystique that made them feel cool. So the lore is that that, it was a blow that Superman struck against the KKK. And da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da. Yeah. And by the way, 1940 is the time when DC starts calling itself Superman DC. 
Superman DC, and then eventually just DC. But that wasn't their official name until 1977. So for what that's worth. Now, DC also makes an animated series that runs from 41 to 43, 1941 to 1943, produced by Flesher Studios, which is this awesome art deco thing that I don't know why I never saw any of them. I just watched a couple clips. You guys, did you guys grow up with that? I, there was some art deco style cartoons that I did watch. They're in color. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Be beautiful. Yeah, yeah, really nice yeah. looking, really yeah. fun. Superman yeah. does dorky things like if he's got to fight some scientist who's got a laser beam, he's going to have to punch the laser all the way back, you know? like Yeah, that's, that's the clip that I just watched. <laughs> Yeah, they're amazing. I mean, they're they yeah. are works of cinematic art. They are yeah, worth. You can really you can fun. find 4K versions on YouTube now. Yeah, of at least some of them. They might arguably be the best visual Superman. That's probably just me being a dork, but yeah, they're short and they're not biting off more they can than they can chew. You can definitely argue that there's no perfect Superman movie, which I'm sure we're going to be talking about here shortly. But these things are perfect little encapsulations of superman and, and yeah. they're just art deco you know like that dumb movie sky captain and the world of tomorrow tomorrow mm-hmm. that guy was really trying to do what's mm-hmm. what's it called again flesher flesher studio like if you get flesher f-l-e-i-s-c-h-e-r i didn't grow up watching these i don't know why i, I did watch a clip i was like what in the world it had a massive budget oh, yeah. for the time yeah, yeah absolutely yeah right yeah i mean these it's are the ones that we watch well, it's budget. These are 10-minute shorts, right? Its budget was $50,000. Yeah, so you could like pick up a VHS of these for yeah. super cheap. Yeah, that's right. I think I had. That's right. right. And I so had I had, we had a, just a couple yeah. of VHSs of these. I think yeah, they yeah. may have fallen into the public domain for a while. So I think they it, still are. It's kind of like Betty Boop or something where you'll just yeah. find these weird compilations of them. Yeah. And Betty Boop also is Flesher. Is Flesher, yeah. And they had the little score they had is something that Williams plays on. Well, one of the things that people said about when Will- Williams was hired to do this score is he'll never beat the music that we all associate with Superman, which is this. Th- that score, yeah. yeah, which is quite good. That's cool. Well, he won. So. Yeah, he did, he did win that one. Yeah, he won. So I was saying, this is $50,000, which is the modern equivalent of paying more than $700,000 for a 10-minute short, per short. Mm-hmm. There are, well, let's see, 17 of these, if I got the number right. Sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first nine are like fantasy sci-fi, like what you want from Superman. The last eight are World War II propaganda. Superman foils the Nazis and the Japanese. Hitler makes a brief appearance in one of them, apparently. And Flesher, like you said, they do... That's the brothers, Dave, Max and Dave Flesher. Guess their ethnicity. <laughs> yeah, they're <German>. Jewish. <laughs> they're German, yeah. They're Jewish. They did, yeah, Betty Boop, Popeye. They did the animated Gulliver's Travels feature film, which mm-hmm. I think I've seen. I've kind seen of, at least some of dull. it. Yeah, it's I mean, be- it's beautiful. Insanely, it's beautiful. like Betty Boop, people think of her as a little sex pot, whatever. But those cartoons are crazy, creative, kind of scary from the id. Yeah, they, they, they are. We. I think we've had some opportunity to talk about we them have. on this show before. We I have. forget why, but we did. These guys were geniuses in their way. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of World War II. Jerry Siegel gets conscripted in 1943, becomes a reporter for a military newspaper in Honolulu during his time away. DC, of course, continues to make bank with Superman. He comes back in 1946 feeling cheated out of royalties from Superman stuff, like the radio show, crazy successful radio show. And also he finds in his at that in his absence, Superman, the DC's created a Superboy comic based on his concept, which he pitched, but they never bought, so they don't have the rights to it. So Siegel's like, okay, Joe, let's sue these guys. So Siegel sues them for Superboy, and then Siegel and Schuster together sue for the rights to Superman, which they can't get because they signed a contract that clearly explicitly signed away the rights. But DC settles with them for some cash and for the rights to Superboy. 
And then DC is like, we're removing your byline created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Yeah, that's gone now. Siegel and Schuster try to write, write one more comic together, apart from DC, called Funny Man in 1947. The satirical, spoofy sort of a take. And it fails. Siegel takes jobs here and there. He slips into relative poverty. Schuster, meanwhile, he draws this and that and slips into relative poverty. He writes, draws some horror and some degraded stuff. His eyesight starts to get bad. In 1948, DC produces their first live-action adaptation of Superman, which is a movie serial starring Kirk Allen. It's really successful. And George Reeves appears first, is who we all think of as the proto-Superman, you know, the right before Christopher Reeve, Superman. He appears in a, the next live-action production, which is a, this 1951 B-movie called Superman and the Mole Men, which is a lead-up into the famous TV series that runs from 52 to 58. So in 59, Jerry Siegel goes back to write for DC. He needs a job. He's writing with no creative control, and he's let go <laughs> in 1966 when DC finds out that, what do you know, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are planning a second big lawsuit to get the rights to Superman. DC's like, we don't have any more work for you, Jerry. And then Siegel and Schuster lose that lawsuit too and goes into financial hard times again. So DC keeps pumping out the Superman animated shows. You know, the, you've got the New Adventures of Superman, the awesome Super Friends show made by Hanna-Barbera in 1974. Disclaimer, not awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Completely not awesome. In 1975, Siegel hears about the upcoming Superman movie. Oh, they're going to make a big one with Christopher Reeve. And he and Schuster make it public. Hey, we're not doing well. DC hasn't treated us well. DC's like, we do not want this negative press. <laughs> we tried to make the Superman movie. They're like, look, if you guys will just shut up from now on and stop contesting the copyright that you signed away, we'll give you a $20,000 a year lifetime stipend. So they take the deal. Later, that becomes $30,000. And then DC, take, again, thinking of the negative press, they restore the byline, like created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And that's really just about the end as far as our creator heroes are concerned. I mean, they die in relative poverty. Schuster dies $20,000 in debt in 1992. DC pays that off with an agreement that Schuster's heirs will get nothing from future royalties of Superman. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't make this up. Lex Siegel's, Luthor himself. <laughs> Siegel's, hair, Siegel's heirs, on the other hand, they have some kind of arrangement that gives them money from DC on a regular basis. I don't know how much, but Siegel, he kept writing comics here and there. He wrote a little bit for Marvel Comics, too. Created the villain Plant Man. He died, <laughs> he died, he died in 1996. Da 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 da! Copyright. It's important. <laughs> so that's the unpleasant tale of those guys and their lives. Which I don't know. It's uh, they successfully create this amazing icon, pop culture wellspring, and then they just become like they act. Uh, it's hard not to feel like they're just acting like parasites for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I know it's sadder than that and whatever, but I don't know. Well, imagine if you created the pop culture icon I know. and then you didn't profit from it. I know, I know. But I, you sold it. Yeah. But you but I, you sold it fair and square. You didn't know it was what it was gonna be. It's just the risk that everybody takes with anything they create at a certain point. It's like, well, you don't know how it's gonna end, you don't know how it's gonna go. Do I take the cash now while I feel like it's hot, or do I hold? Yep. And part of why it was probably able to take off the way it did is because DC, you know, they had it, they could pump it, they could do what they wanted with it. And they weren't going to do that with somebody else's property if they didn't have the rights to it. So yeah, yeah. it's just like, 
It makes sense. It's just the way that it. No, I, I see both sides. I always like the stories of George Lucas losing money initially on Star Wars, keeping the rights, getting the merch right. Like, I, like when somebody's farsighted like that, that's always fun. I like that too. And then it's also fun. It's also sweet sometimes when you see this is kind of a weird example, but New Line Cinema had the rights to Freddy Krueger, who Wes Craven created. And Wes Craven did the first movie, and then they did a bunch of sequels. They made a bunch of money. He was the horror star of the 80s, as I'm sure we remember. And then eventually, the Bob Shea, who owned New Line, is responsible for Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. He went to Wes Craven and was like, hey, I'm going to write you a check. Because even though I don't owe you anything legally, you've built my kingdom. My, you've built my kingdom. And can you come back and do a movie for us? And yeah. Wes Craven did Wes Craven's New Nightmare and profited from Freddy Krueger. And it was a nice story. And they were all friends. And I, I, I like those kinds of stories a lot. <laughs> that didn't happen here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Better than terrible stories of people making the wrong oh choice and suffering. Yeah. And apparently I, they just sunk all their money into who knows what. Funny man. <laughs> I don't know. They made a lot of money at first and then nah, it's just too bad. I'm sure some of our listeners will be familiar with Michael Chabon's fictionalized novel version of a lot of this, uh-huh. uh, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a good novel minus some gay stuff that comes out of nowhere. It's about two thirds of the way through, but it's an interesting version of this. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it is a cool novel, except for that stuff. Yeah. Maybe I'll read it on the booking, except for yeah, that like, stuff yeah. killed it. Yep. Oh, I didn't really remember you guys were going to do that. We were. It was on a list, and then we killed it. I read it ahead, and I was like, uh, uh, and I don't yeah. know if I'd actually make the same decision now, but I, at the time, I felt like... Well, we eh. can revisit it. Yeah, maybe we will. In any case, yeah, anything else? That's it. Can we take a moment to talk about the Jewish of it all? Because I was just yeah. I was just scrolling across tweets today. You know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on conservative Twitter. And so I was just scrolling across tweets today saying how the Jews are controlling our nation and degrading us on purpose, and they hate Anglo-Protestant America, and they control all of our news corporations and our blah, 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 blah. So why do I bring that up? That is not what I'm saying here. But what is interesting is that, and, and I'm sure we've talked about this before on the podcast, is that... Jewish identity is the American identity, the American, the American, identity. I, the American dream. And it is because, so I first got clued into this in my early twenties. I was just sort of like had the veil pulled back. I was recovering from surgery and I, for whatever reason was watching PBS and it was this documentary about Broadway. And instead of it being a Jews have shaped the American narrative, the 20th century American narrative, and it's a horrible conspiracy. It was a celebration of how Jews have shaped the American narrative, and it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Right. And it was just a documentary on PBS about the kinds of things that people act like is a conspiracy theory, but it's just the facts. All of early Broadway, all of early cinema and modern cinema and the comic book industry. Which all of early Broadway means not just Broadway, but the American songbook. I mean, Irving yeah. Berlin, the Gershwins, like... All of it. And so all of these stories, and so then you have these stories of the outsider are all coded Jewish experience type stories. And the only one that you can th- that I can think of that's even explicitly Jewish is Fiddler on the Roof, which comes down the line. But it's all coded outsider stories. So you have the immigrant 
experience. You have the Jewish outsider experience. And then that gets translated to the reason why the leap is made to degeneracy is because it gets translated to gay coding and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But all of the early shapers of what we know as Americana were, in fact, Jews. Bob Kane, who invented Batman, his name is Robert Kahn. He just went by Bob Kane. Mm -hmm. Gershwin, George Gershwin is Gershowitz. It's always that. Siegel, Spiegel and Schuster just happened to sound a little so everything right, that we Jewish, think of as right. just like traditional america whether it's superman whether it's broadway whether it's like just the american songbook behind the scenes of all of that you have jewish artists and creators right well and so without saying that every jew is trying to corrupt what i think you can say is the people that make our myths are self-consciously finding themselves or defining themselves in opposition to Anglo-Protestant America. or While trying to appeal and profit off of Anglo-Protestant America right? at the same time. So it, like that whole idea of we are outside of this and opposed to it, and it's opposed to us, but if we position ourselves in such a way as to be sub, as to subvert it, mm-hmm. And a Trojan horse ourselves and our own stories, we went. That's embedded in the DNA of the entire entertainment industry, top to bottom, since the very earliest days of the 20th century. Yeah. And I don't know. There's a sense in which I feel the same way. Like, I, I am not, I do not define myself as a member of the Anglo Protestant mainstream. Right. I think it's one of the reasons why their stories are powerful is because nobody actually thinks they're part of the club. Nobody actually feels, everybody feels like an outsider, right? To some degree or another. Even if you're a wasp princess, you don't feel like you're part of things. Everybody identifies with the outsider. But people like Zack Snyder is so hammy and Superman Returns was so hammy with the Christ imagery. The Superman, like, mm-hmm. he'll be doing kind of the stigmata pose or whatever. But actually, it's Moses. It, it's Moses. It's the baby in the basket. That is Superman. Now, of course. The reason that translates to Jesus is because Moses is, in fact, right. a type of Christ, mm-hmm. yeah. which is so hilariously ironic that- They can't help but tell Christ stories. They can't help but tell Christ stories when they tell Moses stories, and yet they refuse to connect the dots to Jesus. Right. It's but like, the filmmakers don't. I mean, the filmmakers have Jor-El say, I have sent my only son. <laughs> right. Because everybody understands the connection. The Moses story is a prefigurement and a type of the Jesus story. Everybody understands that. It's just there. And that's why that's why Jesus says some of the things that he does. Right. And why Paul does too. As typology, yeah. as semiotics, Superman is a very benevolent vert. He is he does stand outside of, let's say, Protestant Anglo culture, but he also is the savior of it. So it's a very nice as as far as Jewish myths go, Superman, I guess you could argue, is a nice one. It is like we need a Moses or we need a, they wouldn't want to say Jesus, but we need a savior that's out, that transcends us. A savior, us, a transcendent Christ figure. Who is outside of us. A messiah. A messiah, mm-hmm. yeah. And he cannot be one of us, but he has to fit in with us too if he's going if he's going to make his thing work. Like it's never actually been clear to me why on a plot level Superman needs to hide his identity, but just in terms of it feels right, the myth works, it makes sense. Like they don't even bother explaining it in this movie. You could maybe put it together with his dad saying something or other, but 
there's no real reason. Nothing can hurt this guy. There's no real reason why. It's Well, I would say it's because of the mediator role that he plays. He needs to be able to understand our sufferings like our great high priest. I right, mean, but it's also the thing that gets him into trouble. That's like, right. Jor-El yeah. doesn't actually want him to fall in love with one human being. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to be able to serve all of humanity. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, and if he gets wrapped up, he's going to end up altering human history. Right. Which was not just a metaphor for intervention, but... Apparently, <laughs> a literal alteration of history. <laughs> right. So I think we can talk about the Jewish influence on culture without being accused of co- being conspiracy theorists, because yeah. the Jews would be the first to celebrate it and to agree with us 100%. We would just want to say, yes, we agree with you, but also let's question what was good about this, what was bad about this, and why, and... Well, I'll come back to this when we do Marvel context, but you can draw... You have to remember that comic books are the cutting edge of what's lurid Mm -hmm. and what draws guys into porn. I say that as a kid who read comic books. I understand the links for me into later temptations. They're so, so, yeah. Yeah. Ahead of movies. That's right. They're ahead of movies. So you just draw the line from like Pulp Fiction stuff, which is lurid, to comic books, to stuff like men's adventure magazines, which the Jews, a lot of, at least to a significant extent, had a corner on back in the day. Those men's adventure magazines become today's porn magazines. So all of this stuff is linked. This right. whole entertainment complex from the most evil to the stuff that we like the most is all linked. Well, okay, this is as provocative as I'll get. There is something a little bit condescending or smarmy about it. There is a little bit of like, hey, Anglo-Protestant America, hey, Anglo-Protestant men, I know what you really want, and I know how I can get you. Sexy lady on the cover, <laughs> you idiots, you'll buy my magazine. There is that cynicism. And there is that kind of like, you wouldn't let me come through the front door of your culture, so I'm going to take the back door and I'm going to make you come crawling to me because you made me come crawling to you. And there's a, an envy and jealousy. Yeah. And the sense of, with that cynicism, that sense of, yeah, we tried faithfulness to God. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's, we tried that. Let's not forget that all comedy comes from the Jewish experience to all American comedy comes directly from the Jewish Borscht Belt comedians and all your sort of famous, you know, the Marx Brothers, whatever. Well, and pop music too. And pop music. Who's been a greater contributor to, and let's just take out the producers and everybody else behind the scenes and just say Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. A lot of the Jewish comedians, they have riffs on this sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, even if they're not great comedians, they're going to talk about Adam Sandler has a song mm-hmm. about this sort of thing, right? That's one of his comedy bits is he has a song about all the Jews who have shaped everything. Well, and Spielberg, I mean, we talk about Spielberg all the time, but Sp- Spielberg, like, he's the shaper of, you know, you don't have to go back 100 years to see this, like the shaper of our pop culture right now. We're about to see the fifth Indiana Jones movie, like. Yeah, we're just like, he gave us, he's the shaper of our childhoods, right? and mm-hmm. everything downstream of it, and everything that everybody's trying to imitate today, and that everything that's still paying off today. Yeah, I mean, where I don't want to go with the conspiracy theories is theorists is... There's if, some kind of cabal. Well, and also, if I have a neighbor and his name is Goldstein, I'm not going to assume he's out to get me, and I think it's wicked right. to do so. Like, it, uh, what, what, you can make a generalization about a people and about their position in society without, therefore, assuming that every last person that you run into is the maximum representation. Yeah. I grew up in a very Jewish part of my city at the time. I could walk 
to the synagogue. And so that a lot of Jewish families lived in my neighborhood. I had a lot of Jewish friends growing up. And some of them were just really great people and really great friends. Right. And it's not some kind of one-to-one. And thing. we wouldn't be doing this podcast if we didn't love their stories and love their sense of humor. I think we have to admit that. The angle that they have on things yeah. is smart and you like it and you hate what's evil about it. But, yeah, but also brilliant. But yeah, and in that sense of just sort of- And fun. We are God's people and we're the ones who have suffered. <laughs> that can get very blasphemous very fast. And I don't even like in Fiddle on the Roof when Tevi is having his little conversations mm-hmm. with God. But that basic sort of wry approach to life, like, you know, here I am, I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to make my way and things fall apart is something that is so central to our experience, the American experience, the way we look at ourselves, the way we laugh at ourselves. And I just, you know, I can't. and everything we love and identify with about some of our greatest heroes, like it is Indiana Jones, the American hero as shaped by Jewish identity is not actually Superman right. for the most part. It is Indiana Jones getting the crap kicked out of him and keep getting back up and doing the right thing. It's Spider-Man, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Even our superpowered heroes, like what we love about our heroes is not that they are invulnerable. It's that they've overcome something and that they just keep getting back up. It's Rocky, you know, he's going to go down and he's going to get back up. That's what we love about them. Yeah. What we love about Superman is if we line up the movies that we've talked about in this and we fit Rocky into it, Superman's just the daddy figure. And Rocky is, but Rocky and Indiana Jones, they're the everyman, they're the us of it all. Yeah. Who can pull through. And Luke Skywalker is the kid, the son, who's got that sort of G-shucks innocence that Superman has. But stuck in between Luke Skywalker and Superman is everybody else. Mm -hmm. And it's just the guy who gets Mm -hmm. beat down and gets back up and just keeps getting back up. And that's his chief virtue is he doesn't quit. He never stops. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm trying to decide whether to talk about this now. Yeah, why not? So just in tracing the, I don't know, did you have anything else you want to say about this well, before I'm going to move real, a little bit? Real quick, yeah. just to, to the extent that they're like, we'll sell you stuff by putting a, a naked lady on the cover of our comic or whatever. To the extent that anyone does that, you don't think of like a just a puppeteer, like, ha, 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 I have you now, white guy. Number of Palpatine. What, right. What you think of is, well, this is also what you want, and you are also a slave to sexual perversion as you do this, even however cynically, in a marketing move, is also what you want. You're right. also given over to porn. Yeah, it's not like you were perfectly virtuous and the golem <laughs> came crawling out of the mud. To... Yeah, yeah, that's right. So l- let me go ahead and give what I think, where I think that particularly Christopher Reeve's Superman sort of lands on the trajectory of these kinds of heroes mm-hmm. more specifically. Because I think there is a sort of more waspy male identity that comes out of sort of John Wayne school. My wife was just watching McClintock No, not too long ago, and there's a line where he says, never apologize, son. It's a sign of weakness. Now, whatever that is, was every man like that? No, but my grandpa who fought in World War II was sure like that. You couldn't get go anywhere emotionally with that guy. Mm-hmm. And I think out of World War II, we have this idea of the man of action who's not interested in feelings and can't really relate to kids or talk to you like you're a human being and are a little scary. And John Wayne 
he might punch you and you might learn something, but he's not going to like take you aside and empathize with your feelings or anything like that. He's going to throw you in the water so you can learn, learn to, to swim. swim. Yeah. That's that brand of masculinity. Yeah. And there's a weird distinction. So, uh, sorry, I'm stuck on uh, never apologize, son. What mm. was the rest of the line? I never apologize, son. It's a sign of weakness. Okay. There's a sense in which there's a lot of truth to that. Mm. And it's a lesson that a lot of men need to learn. But taken too far. What it means is the good version is don't live your life like you're always apologizing. Yeah, you don't apologize for existing, for, for being existing, in the room, for, for being a man, for hey, don't, I'm sorry, don't, I... don't surrender your dignity and your power and your authority to people because you feel a need to appease them or make them like you. Right? There's that side of things that is the virtue that John Wayne represents, but you know, is not weakness to admit real fault. Right. And there is something, I think that there was something hollow about the 1950s man that we would not like and we would not want to go back to. There's a reason why he fell apart. Right. Yeah. There's a reason why he was subsumed by the sexual revolution for crying out loud. Like, mm, yeah. it, people did not like their dads actually never apologizing, you know, to wildly generalize. People <laughs> did not like oh, man. a man who could not ever, who thought that any show of feeling was. A show of weakness. A show of weakness. Unless it was anger. Yeah, unless it was anger. Like, the only kind of thing that you can feel is aggression. And to do anything else is to be effeminate. And that's not real masculinity. It's not biblical masculinity. It's not David. It's not Jesus. Jesus wept. But that being said, that is the sort of, that is the masculine image in, that is dominant in mid-century art. And then you have the sexual revolution. You have the Beatles. You have effeminization, the embrace of androgyny, long hair, all that stuff. On the one hand... And then on the other hand, you have James Bond and Playboy magazine, and they both feel like reactions to that. So you have the Beatles like, oh, we're just rebellious men, and we've got our long hair, and we're just sexually androgynous men. And, but we also, but, and then you have James Bond who just feels like what? It, just cynical. Well, it's, yeah, it's just like, why have any pretense of being a family man and a father if I have no interest in being a father or a family man? I'll just be a womanizer and a badass. Yeah, why don't I killer. take what's fun about Post-John male aggression? Wayne. Well, it's and then Clint Eastwood. Yeah, well, that's where I'm going with this. Dirty Harry comes out in 1971, and Dirty Harry is such a distillation of the reaction to that, where it's just like John Wayne is a righteous killer. Dirty Harry likes to kill. Dirty Harry gets a kick out of shooting people and actually so does james bond james bond gets his kick out of sl- sleeping around james yeah let's bond. just not pretend to have any virtue whatsoever yeah because let's just drop the pretense yeah, guys drop the, we don't need a hypocrite like why did you bother marrying my mom and having me if you were just gonna sleep around and screw whoever you wanted and, and you just like to show. dominate and destroy and, and yeah, show just off go your out, power yeah just go out and dominate destroy and conquer the woman and mm-hmm. don't don't Drop the hypocrisy and the pretense. Yeah, and so Clint Eastwood's whole career is just, I mean, he's spent the last 30 years apologizing for it, but the first part of his career is just that. Just, guys, let's drop the pretense and let's have fun with this. Dirty Harry's a funny character because he admits that's what he is. He gives these great speeches, you know, the, did I fire five shots or six? Like, I would make my day. He's got a gun to a guy's head. The guy's got a hostage. He's like, please shoot the hostage so that I can blow your head off because that's my view of human life. Like the thing that I really, that would just make my day is a coffee and blowing your head off, black man. And so 
there was something very cathartic about that for people. It was also, even then, like you can find all the think pieces from 1971 with the first Dirty Harry on where people are just like, this is fascist. This is terrible. This is playing to the worst instincts in us. What happened? And what they don't realize is that, well, actually our masculinity idea in 1950 with John Wayne was a little hollow and the response with the sexual revolution was hollow. And so Clint Eastwood's brand of cynicism is just really appealing to people. But then a few years later, I think you have an equal and opposite hero. And I would actually, I was thinking about this a lot because Rocky comes out in 76, Star Wars comes out in 77, and the movie we're talking about today comes out in 78. And these characters are obviously that you couldn't find three more different characters in their approach to life than Rocky, Luke Skywalker, and Superman. But I think there is something that makes them all of a type. And I think the thing that I would say about all of them, I came up with a clever term for this. I'll call it boys to zen. You get it, guys? They're appealing because they start out boyish, with their wear their hearts on their sleeve. They're very affable, and they have emotional access in a way that John Wayne and Dirty Harry didn't. Superman, for all his kind of portentousness, he's got an easy way with himself and with his emotions and with his romance that... John he's got, Wayne. Dude's got some charisma. He's got some charisma. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that John Wayne and Gary Cooper and Cary Grant and Gregory Peck never had. But then you have to ask the question of, okay, we know the world's crap. We know what we really need is for Dirty Harry and James Bond to just unleash their ids because that's how you survive in this world. So it's like, how can you actually make your way when you're embracing the more, as they would see it, effeminate side of yourself with Rocky, with Luke, with Superman? And I think in all three cases, the answer is you have to become Zen. You have to access a larger part of the universe and become one with it one way or another. And with Rocky, it's just asking the universe to give him what he wants because he believes in it so hard. And with Skywalker, it's literally like he has to learn to use the force. Like it's just the metaphor is just made into not a metaphor and with Superman, at least in the architecture of what you can see that they were trying to do with these two movies and the Donner cut and everything like that, it's like, yeah, you can have your romance with Lois and you always will, but you got to stand for something bigger and you've got to wash yourself of like specific attachment. It's what gets you into trouble. It's also what like there's a sense of which Adrian is ultimately like a little bit incidental as much as we love her. and. Leia ends up being incidental to Luke's journey and super like all these guys have to forego personal happiness one way or another. I realize I'm broadly generalizing and you can find sort of self-contradictions in these movies. But I think broadly speaking, that was coming out of so you have John Wayne and then you have the reaction to that, which is Dirty Harry and James Bond. And then the reaction to that is, well, we're going to have a more a hero that embraces his feminine side a little bit more that's that has more access to his emotions that wears his heart on his sleeve that's kind of a more boyish well it's interesting in contrast to what you're saying we just talked about guardians of the galaxy 3 and that is very different because that is not zen that is right. all found family that is all specific if we have a moral code eh maybe we do but it arises because we have a found family and that's why well it's kind of like if you don't actually believe in good then what is your good? Like, what is it that keeps you, that actually enables you to defeat the monsters and keep them at bay? 
James Bond, Dirty Harry, they say you just unleash your own monster. I mean, that's the only way in to do service it. of what's less monstrous. Western yeah, civilization. in both cases, those guys are appealing because they work for institutions. They're standing up for institutional authority, and the institution is in some sense curbing what's most terrible about them. They're not just pure vigilantes, but they kind of are also. Like they, they use the best of their id, but they bring just enough of the other two parts of themselves that they don't just become pure psychopaths. But we realize you need a lot of id to get anything done. And so then you get past that and you're like, okay, I, it's, you can't actually be an, a well-integrated, appealing, masculine figure if you're just dirty. Like, Dirty Harry has no life. James Bond ultimately has no life. Like, nobody would actually want to be with these guys or be around these guys. They're, a little, they're appealing for a one-night stand, but what's the relationship that you could actually have with this guy? What's the ongoing relationship that we as an audience can have with this guy? And you have to find different answers. And I think so much of the answer now is found family is what anchors me and gives me purpose and gives me a reason to keep going. Star Wars, I don't think has had an answer in these new, in the new trilogy, which is one of the problems. Like it just doesn't have anything to say and just, I guess, found family as much as anything. But where Ray's story goes is really generic. I don't know the reason. Was it on this version of the podcast or one of the discarded ones where I said that all action cinema, all cinema of the male goes back to Ethan Edwards, John Wayne standing outside the door mm. in The Searchers? So the question is always, can the American hero who saves society also be a part of that society? Or do you need to stand above or below or to some side of that society in order to fit in and mostly the answer is you can't iron man tries but he dies captain america ultimately gives up on it the guardians just create their own little family superman we never got a coherent actual superman narrative Zack snyder gave us a coherent narrative but it's just pure fascism it's just pure like he's actually <laughs> nietzsche's superman <laughs> and that's what i actually think is cool as Zack snyder Again, I've said this a million times. One of the things I don't like about Harry Potter is that J.K. Rowling's answer to that question is way too easy. She's just like, yeah, Harry can reintegrate. It's fine. He can save the world and then be a part of the world. And I'm like, yeah, I'd like to think that. But I'm not. Sh that's not usually how the hero's journey goes. And it feels a little weird to me. I know Harry loses a lot of friends and it's very sad, especially for younger children. But all was well. Just the final scene on the platform just always feels a little bit false to me because Frodo Baggins can't go back to the Shire again, and I'm not sure Harry can go back to Hogwarts. Anyway, those are that's where I think Superman lands. He's wanting to be a better man than John Wayne. He's wanting to be something more. As much as we all, a lot of people will look back on Christopher Reeve's Superman and say he's just a cheese ball kind of dad figure with nothing to him. I don't actually think that that's what Donner's intending or what certainly not what Reeves, you can find quotes where Reeve is saying, specifically positioning himself against John Wayne. Like he says, like, our ideas of what a man is have changed in the 70s. And so I want to be that kind of Superman, which is really funny because when we look back, when people look, watch this movie now, they're just like, what an old fashioned idea of manliness. But Christopher Reeve is actually trying to be a, as cutting edge as he possibly can. Luke has to get rid of all of his emotions and attachments. Right. And that's ultimately, if you remember in the Donner cut, it's like Lois and Superman can't be together. 
Like that was dumb. He he can't do that. He needs to go back to just being Superman. Jor-El was right. So it's the same thing. And Rocky is its own thing. It might be a stretch to include Rocky, but I think Rocky is always playing with that. Adrian would ultimately rather him just be home, but then she needs to support. Rocky always kinds of has to empty himself to win. He but to- he can only do it if Adrian's behind him. Yeah, but he becomes more of a superhero. Like he is Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi by the later films in the series. And the love story kind of doesn't matter. The movies don't actually care. I'm not trying to argue that there's not things in the movies that contradict it. I just think the broad sweep is always like... Give them enough sequels, this is where they have to go. They can't live in the tension of, we have a a family and we have big principles. Yeah, nobody actually believes that those two things can go together the way that we as Christian men take for granted. Everybody always thinks there's tension there. Yeah, you either have to be oriented to your code and your mission and screw the family and screw the people, or you have to be oriented to your woman or your family and screw the mission and screw the code. And the mission is always suspect. Like at the end of the day... Because the real mission should be the family. The real mission should be the family or, yeah, sure, of course, Emperor Palpatine needs to be defeated. But you lose something in the process. To be a warrior is to give up being a lover is to give up being a lover so there's all, no such thing as the warrior poet or the warrior lover right it's all samurai movies ever and all these movies i think broadly we are embracing a more eastern way of thinking about these things and when you say we are embracing you mean starting in these movies in the 70s like yeah. this is george lucas he hasn't fully gone there in the first star wars but luke is such a less appealing character to me at least by return of the jedi he just has become this Zen figure, and we're mm-hmm. going to shuffle his love interest off with Han Solo, who feels pretty mm, emasculated mm-hmm. in that movie. It's yep. like being a lover and being saved by his love kind of makes Han Solo a guy that just steps on twigs and is comedy relief now. In order to, I mean, kids always love Han Solo, but he doesn't even get to be part of the bike chase for crying out loud. Like, he's just funny. Harrison Ford obviously doesn't care. Like, it's not doing it for him. Anyway. I don't have to talk about Han Solo. Mm. It's like they've actually all accepted the Clint Eastwood frame, like that to be a man of action is to be, it's to engage in something intrinsically bad and intrinsically channeling parts of yourself that are destructive. And so you can zen. It'll be fun to revisit this conversation when we hit Raimi. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe what I should do is very much his conception of Peter Parker. Right. Or the tension that he at least, the question that, the central question he wants to ask and falls apart asking it over and over again. Yeah, maybe the more useful way for me would have been to frame this, would have, and I framed it this way, but maybe I should have from the very start said, these movies don't actually answer the question. This, these are just the questions that they're playing with. And I see a sort of, in the 70s, in the late 70s, in the early 70s, I see a shut off, let your inner monster take over. That's Dirty Harry, that's James Bond, 60s, 70s. In for a few dollars more, that stuff is all that early Clint Eastwood. And then late 70s, I see, well, that's actually not appealing. That's actually not what we want from a man. We want a guy who has some self-knowledge, some self-awareness, some enthusiasm for life, some enthusiasm for love, someone with some emotional integration. But then that, that begs another question. How can you be that guy and be a successful warrior? And the answer is, it's either really hard 
or you can't, or, I mean, maybe Rocky is actually appealing because he pulls it off. Rocky, Rocky, maybe we could argue Rocky is the one hero from all the stuff that manages to integrate that stuff. I think if you take Rocky or Rocky one and two. Yeah. I was going to say, at least for a couple uh, of movies. Then it, he very much feels that way to me. But the series. As a a totally separate, there's Mm -hmm. just more heart and more to him as a character than any of these other guys who are playing much more of a blank slate. Yes. Typological role. But it, but then I do want to push back a little bit and say it is interesting that the series moves past that into typology and kind of Rocky becomes less of the character that we love from one and two and more of just this typological superhero. This typological superhero. Right. And even the first movie is playing with the like, I don't remember whether they actually stop having sex, but they certainly talk about it. He's like, I, I need to keep myself. There's always some feeling of like how do you integrate these things you can't you have to you don't want to give your potency over here when you need to give it over <laughs> now here. you're reminding me of dr strange love well but that's something <laughs> as much deeply embedded in sports culture as anything else like you're going to have like even if you watch a movie like bull durham they're going to talk about well you can't pitch if you've had if you've made love that you can't do that the same day it robs you of your strength it takes your legs out it robs you of your right. nerve and your potency you have to be all like, it's got to be your sexual energy channeled. So you can't have that. Like they're going to talk about that explicitly in a movie like Bull Durham, but that's locker room talk. Mm -hmm. Like locker room talk for sports is going to be talking about keeping your girlfriend away for the weekend, keeping her away on game day, no porn or anything like that on game day until after the game. That's locker room talk because there's such a connection with your physical performance or at least your conception of your physical performance and your just your verve as a man, your sexual energy, your potency, your strength. But don't you think that comes out of the same cultural stew that these movies do? Like for example, Spider-Man. Oh yeah. I'm sure it's all interconnected, but I also think you can go back to probably warrior, warrior manuals from Sparta. Well, you, I'm thinking of Uriah not being willing to go to his wife when David summons him home from battle. Right. It's always something that people have dealt with. It is an interesting Freudian way to frame Spider-Man as just the story of a man who really wants to have sex and doesn't know whether he can fulfill his mission and have sex at the same time. And he's in agony for his entire life about that problem. And he never solves it. And when he does, he gets impotent in other places, at least that's how Raimi thinks of it. Well, and now we have a series where we're going to say mm-hmm. the black kid can do it, which is hilarious. Although maybe he doesn't end up with a girl. Maybe the black kid actually is Zen, like I've been saying at the end of the day. We'll find out. But we all kind of think a black kid might be able to do it a little bit better. Maybe that's just our the self-hatred that we've been taught. But it's like, I don't know. Miles, well, that's, Miles that's might a, have a better shot than Peter. Well, that's a race frame, but Peter's an orphan and Miles has a family, which yeah. is another frame. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. I, I'm intentionally choosing the most base of the frames. Okay, well, there, we've thrown out a bunch of stuff for you to think about, and we'll keep thinking about it as we go. Let me talk about the making of Superman, which, as I've said before, is a interesting story with heroes and villains. as. It came out in 1978, directed by Richard Donner. The tagline was, you will believe a man can fly 
It made $300 million, which is the equivalent of a billion or something this movie made. A lot of money. It was also the most expensive movie to its time, which is a joke to talk about now because I think it cost $55 million, which is like the catering budget on a Marvel movie. <laughs> but $55 million also would have been way more <laughs> back then. So the story of this movie is the story of why we have comic book movies at all, as I've said, because it was not intuitive to people to make a comic book movie and to make it for adults and to make it on this scale and to spend this much money on it. We needed people with a real vision to do this or we wouldn't have the entire comic book industry. We wouldn't have action movies. We wouldn't have fantasy movies the way that we have. We have Star Wars to thank for that, which came a year before this movie. But even with the success of Star Wars, people were still just like, Superman is not going to work. So I'm going to very self-consciously cast this as a story of good versus evil. We have our all-American good guy versus our slimeball European <laughs> villains. And the good guy is named Richard Donner. The slimeball European villains are Alexander and Ilya Salkind. The Salkins tried to possess and destroy Superman, and it was up to Donner to save him. But it would not be easy. So let me take it back. To the early 70s, nobody is, Star Wars hasn't even come out yet. Nobody is thinking about doing a comic book movie. Comic books are for kids. There's no graphic novels. Like, it's for kids. It's a dumb thing that your kid buys with a nickel and he wastes his time. He could be outside playing. He could be working a job. Instead, he reads comic books. As Ben talked about, there had been some good cartoons of Superman. There had been those, the cheesy Superman, George Reeve TV show, which is really is silly and there had been some serial <laughs> films of Batman and Superman in the 1940s but they're all B movies they're all silly nobody is looking at this i just i don't think it's possible for us to enter it now into how much people were not looking at this as a thing that was going to work as a thing that was going to that even made sense like there's just like you have a guy in a red cape with blue tights like nobody is we cannot do a serious version there is no serious version the one kind of thing that had been done successfully with this stuff that everybody agreed worked was the campy, I think we were just talking about this on an episode, the Batman, 1960s Batman, which embraced pure camp, pure irony. And that show is very clever and very subversive in what it does. But you can also feel the producers of that show just being like, this is what we have to do. Like, we can't, there is no serious version of this stupid story of a Batman with his butler and his car and his super villains like the only way for us to do this is to find some angle on it that makes it a joke and we can little kids can be excited about it but if we don't find an ironic way to approach this from the side it's not going to work and so that's batman that's like everything that had come before the person who just like sometimes lex luther he could start a good thing i guess he comes to the city and says i'm gonna give energy to metropolis it's like one of those plots but then he's got an evil plan well our slimeball european villains alexander salkand and his son Ilya, were the ones who came up with the idea to do superman so we have to give them a little credit for that alexander was what else for our story today a russian jewish born man who moved to france and became a french independent film producer by which i mean someone who does not work for warner brothers or one of the big studios but just raises money makes his own movies, produces them, acts as the studio, and then generally will make a, if he has a movie, will make a deal with the studio to distribute it because it's hard to be your own distributor. 
But he and his son Ilya were both in the business and they were known to be shady. There's actually a law, a rule in the Screen Actors Guild now called the Salkind Rule, which basically says it's illegal to do what the Salkinds did to us that one time because the Salkinds, they produced a movie called The Three Musketeers based on Dumas's novel in 1973. Great movie with Michael York and Christopher Lee. Charlton Heston plays Richelieu and it's really fun. All star-studded cast, but it was going to be one of those four-hour kind of Ben-Hur kind of epics, but somewhere in there they decided, eh, we're just going to split it. We'll make two. We'll make The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. And so all the actors found out as the first movie was premiering, hey, so Charlton Heston, by the way, you actually starred in two movies, but we paid you for one and you're getting royalties for one. <laughs> and the actors weren't happy. I think they all went after in the, after the money from the Salkins. And this rule, the, to this day, there's the Salkind rule, which is that if you're going to make a series, you can't hire Robert Downey Jr. to do one movie, one Iron Man movie, and then say, Oh, we got too much material. We're going to make it two. Unless you go back and renegotiate with him, and then he makes a lot more money. You can see how it would be very easy to mm. misuse a star that way, yep. uh, which is exactly what the Salkinds were famous for doing. Especially if you're doing something like the MCU or something like that. Right. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. That's why we always hear about this guy has such and such a number of movies left on his Marvel contract or his star. It's like, and what constitutes an appearance? How many minutes constitutes right. an appearance? That stuff is all, it's like reading the sports page and like the, there's so much of it is just so much of the interest. If you follow this is just like the salary negotiations and stuff like that. It's kind of endlessly fascinating if you're into this stuff or if you just like to watch the rich and famous devour each other, which personally I love. So Ilya Salkind, the younger, Salkind the younger has the idea to do Superman, the old, the cheesy old comic. And they negotiate in the early 70s with DC for about a year to get the rights. And DC's like, ah, we'll let you do it, but we need to know who you're going to cast as Superman. And so they're like, how does Muhammad Ali strike you? And they're like, yeah, cool. Or Al Pacino or James Caan or Clint Eastwood or Dustin Hoffman. And DC's like, okay, that sounds pretty good. So that just goes to show neither the Salkinds nor DC is actually taking this stuff with the reverence that your most basic comic book nerd takes it now. They're just thinking of it in terms of... If we he get a headliner. Yeah, we'll get a headliner. Al Pacino as Superman. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's almost as rich as Nicolas, Nicolas Cage. Cage. Yeah. Nicolas Cage, yeah. It's, so they get the rights to Superman, and then they make what's called a negative pickup deal with Warners, which is... A, which is I'm sorry, I really find the contract kind of stuff pretty interesting. So a negative pickup deal means that the studio agrees to purchase... The, a completed film at a given date and some. So I have to go as the producer, raise the money myself, make the movie myself. But if I complete it by such and such a time with such and such stipulations, then Warner Brothers agrees to buy it from me. Negative doesn't mean the opposite of positive. It means like film negative. We're going to pick up the film negative from you. So essentially what this means is it's good for the studio because they don't have to assume liability for production that may or may not work. Like if everything falls apart, they're not going to spend a dime on it. It's good for the producer because I've basically got, as long as I can bring the movie in time under the agreed to stipulations, I've got a post-dated check. Like it'll be paid for. And it would be like if somebody came to Jake and said, I'd like to build a building for Church of the King. But Jake, actually, you need to raise all the money. You need to get the building built. If you get it built by such and such a date, then I'll write you a check for the entire thing. 
but I'm just not going to front the money up front. I need to see that you can, I don't know why somebody would do that. Although I've created things like this in the yeah. church world, even the fundraising world, the nonprofit world. And so the good thing about that is you can borrow money against the promise that we're Warner Brothers. You can go to private investors and say, hey, they're going to pay for everything, but I just need to get the money up front. The bad thing is you better deliver your film or you're going to be stuck with a product that's not finished, no distributor. And so anyway, the Saw mm-hmm. Kinds get that kind of deal. Warner Brothers will, be, will buy the film and be a distributor if they can just get it done. The next problem that they have is that, like I said, nobody takes this stuff seriously. So they're like, how can we make this sound like a prestige A picture? So they decide they're just going to spend money up front to, to get headlines and make this look good. And so immediately they hire that, that great guy known for his light touch and pop culture savvy, Mario Puzo, our old friend, <laughs> the author of The Godfather, to write the script. And, and they're not paying because it's, it's, nowhere has anyone like, oh, Mario Puzo, he's got an angle on Superman. No, it's just like he's got a name that is intriguing. Like, hey, Mario Puzo's Superman. That's interesting. So we're going to pay for that name. And then we're going to pay for two more names and they're going to be the, the greatest actors of their respective generations. We're going to pay, we're going to get Hackman, Gene Hackman up front. We're going to pay him a couple million dollars and we're going to get Brando, Marlon Brando. To, we don't have a script. We don't have an angle. We have got Puzo. We've got, a, we've got the rights to Superman. We've got Mario Puzo as our writer. We've got nothing else, but hey, Brando, for $4 million or whatever, will you lend us your credibility? And Brando's like, yeah, sure. I can buy a lot of donuts with that <laughs> so <laughs> i think that's what he said <laughs> so brando signs on for the biggest payday of an actor up to that point obviously again you now people make a lot more but 3.7 million dollars plus a hefty nice percentage of the gross puzo writes this giant script which is 500 pages long it's supposed to be two Superman movies. So they decide to do the Musketeer thing, but they're being upfront about it. They know they can't get away with it twice. So they're hiring everybody to do two movies and to shoot them all at once, like Lord of the Rings or something like that. Then they hire a director named Guy Hamilton, who is famous for doing Goldfinger. He was one of the great James Bond directors to shoot the movie in Italy. The problem is Italy doesn't have nearly the tax breaks that Britain does. And if you haven't caught on, the Sulkins like their money and like to do things successful. They're slimeball European villains. So they, I'm going to just make this as cut and dried as I can. So they're like, you know what? We actually need to shoot in Britain. Unfortunately, Guy Hamilton is a tax exile. Britain had, everybody was a tax exile from Britain. Christopher Lee didn't live in Britain for a long time. Britain's tax taxes were very tyrannical then, probably still are, but he's not going to go back. So suddenly they are, going to need another director for this movie. And so who do they think of? This uh, is one of my Ben-like trick gouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wondering who it could be. Hold on. Remember, this is the mid-1970s. Coppola? Coppola? Uh, Coppola? Uh, no, go think even more mainstream. Just say the obvious one. Spielberg. Spielberg. Okay. So they're like, hey, we should get the Spielberg guy. His duel thing and Sugarland Express was really good, Ilya Salkind says. Well, let's get him for Superman. We can get him for the right price. And the dad is like, yeah, let's see. He's got this fish movie coming out. Let's see how the fish movie does. If the fish movie does good, then maybe he can direct our Superman. Well, the fish movie does pretty well. And then Spielberg after that is not interested in, he's he priced out. He doesn't need any more stepping stones. <laughs> yes, exactly. So they actually had their shot. These guys suck. They had their shot. 
I, I'm gonna when we do Superman two, I'll try and tell the tell more of the story from their point of view because maybe they have, but they are the bad guys of this. So Spielberg is not available. So they're like, who else is like a young, hungry guy who's got some credibility that we can get? And they think of Richard Donner, our hero of the story, an all-American good guy. Da, 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 da. Richard Donner, one of the great middle-of-the-road populists <laughs> in film. <laughs> one of sure. the great generic showmen. Yep, yep, yep. You might know him from The Goonies, The Lethal Weapon quadrilogy, personal favorite of mine when I was a kid, Maverick. I don't know why I like that movie I so much. I like that one too. But it was a lot too. of fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, Mel Gibson, what a charming guy. Mm-hmm. I mean that non-ironically. He's I, Mel Gibson. People forget. What a great star. Conspiracy Theory, uh, Scrooged, Lady Hawk. Did he direct Conspiracy Theory? Yes, he did. What a yeah. terrible yeah. piece yeah. of garbage. Yeah. Well, that's like a, one Scrooged of those. Scrooged is even worse. Yeah. I believe it. So R- Richard Donner is only ever as good as the material, but he's a very good craftsman. I mean, Lethal Weapon is quietly a better movie than Did you guys Hard know there or... was a, that he directed a Goonies sequel? Mm-hmm. Can't be true. It's right here. It's right here. The Goonies 2, Hey Again, You Guys, with a totally different cast or something like that. Maybe it's not a, maybe it's not pulling up for me. Oh, no, no, no. It's some kind of. Yeah, I'm seeing articles here that say, Why the Goonies 2 never happened despite many scripts. Okay. Maybe it had to do with Corey Feldman. Well, in any case, yeah. Well, Corey Feldman's his own Hollywood tragedy. But in any case, Donner. He's really good. The action direction on the Lethal Weapon films, Lethal Weapon 2 was another personal favorite of mine at a certain age. It's got that wonderful uh, diplomatic immunity. I've got scenes of that in my head. It was like, I was never, my dad really loved the Lethal Weapon movies. And Shane Black was involved in those. Yeah, yeah, he wrote the script for the first two. But we were never allowed to watch them, but be like about bedtime or whatever in a Lethal Weapon movie. So you'd, creep down and or you get little bits and pieces of it oh yeah yeah i've only seen tv edits i think i know that they have sex in them and stuff so they weren't even they were more unfriendly even than die hard yeah so i would say just in terms of that style they are better objectively better like he's a better action director than any of the die hard directors were what? Like, better uh, than die hard one you uh, really think so i think the movie has think about die hard every one. day i get up and i find another reason Yeah, it's got a great emotional hook, Mel Gibson. I don't know. Die Hard 1, the thing about it is there's so much in between stuff. There's so many dumb characters that show up to just be dumb and keep John McClane. Like when the action happens in Die Hard, it's amazing. The hanging off the building, all that. But there's actually not as much action as you want when you watch Die Hard. Um, Sure. Maybe I'm just a a crank, but I'm always just a little disappointed when I go back to Mm. Die Hard. It's such a wonderful Christmas movie, though. <laughs> it's got the same opinion that the internet has. I'm different. <laughs> Richard Donner, born 1930. He's an all-American good guy. Like I said, he served in the Navy as an aerial photographer and then became an actor, wanted to become an actor, got, was doing off-Broadway stuff. And then there's this story where he goes and he's acting in some TV show, like maybe has two lines or something, and the director calls him over. Nice guy says, hey, Dick, you're not actually good at this acting thing. You don't want to be an actor. You want to be a director. And Richard Donner's like, oh, oh yeah, I could be a director. And he's like, why don't you be my assistant director? So through, through the random kindness of some guy, he becomes a director. And then he moves into directing TV. And he directs a lot of iconic TV, probably stuff that we've all seen something of. He directed 
Man from Uncle, Gilgan's Island episodes, Kojak, like stuff for all the kind of iconic stuff. For he, he directed uh, Twilight Zone. He directed probably the most famous Twilight Zone, Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. If you, I don't know if you guys remember Bill Shatner. William yeah. Shatner is in the airplane. There's a little gremlin yeah. on the wing. It's one of those you can't take it's a, as iconic as it gets. Plane ride without people of a certain age saying there's a gremlin on the wing. It's, it's uh, yeah, that's Richard Donner, and that's a great episode. And yeah, so he becomes a really reliable TV craftsman, and then he gets his big shot with a little movie called The Omen, which is the best of the post-exorcist satanic panic boom. Gregory Peck, of all people, plays the senator who may or may not have the Antichrist as his adopted child. He's trying to figure it out the whole movie. Strange accidents are happening to people who interfere with this child's life, and the kid's acting a little strange, and maybe he's the Antichrist. I don't know. And as far as those kinds of movies go, it's the best. It's fun. It plays with that 70s paranoia really well and actually does a pretty credible job of Greg. Is Gregory Peck just crazy? What if you just found yourself having with a kid later in life and it was unpleasant and some things happened and then you started weaving this wild theory? So Donner does a really good job, has a big hit with that. He's hot and he's he's like this guy. He's had one hit, so you can still get him cheap, but... He's got some credibility. So our all-American good guy, Richard Donner, gets a fateful phone call one day from slimeball European Alexander Salkind. And Alexander Salkind says, this is Alexander Salkind. I don't know what kind of accent he has. Do you know who I am? And Donner's like, yeah, I do. Thanks for calling. Because Donner, remember, he knows the Salkinds are famous for the Salkind thing, the Three Musketeers thing. So, and... The next thing on the phone is, we want you to do Superman. And Donner's like, yeah, right. Nobody can do Superman. That's a bad idea. Thanks for calling. And then the next thing on the phone, we'll pay you a million dollars. And Donner says, yes, how are you? What can I do for you? Let's talk. So, And that's exactly, that's exactly how Donner tells the story, by the way. Donner's a really fun guy to watch interviews with. He's very avuncular, very likable. I've listened to whole commentaries of, of things he's done. I like him a lot. He's just a, he's a good teller of his own myth. But much like Luther luring Otis into his pay, our, our slimeball European villain gets our <laughs> hero with the offer of a million dollars. And with the offer of working with Pac-Man and Brando, who we've already hired for a huge sum of money. And so that's the Salkinds. They want something. They just throw money at it. But they are also shifty people, as we'll find. So they're like, hey, so Salkind's like, we have a 500-page script. It's by Mario Puzo. You're going to shoot two movies at once. We already have a release date set. Donner's like, I don't know. Can I, I don't know if anyone can really do Superman. Salkind's like, we'll send you the script. So later that day, a messenger arrives with this giant tome, 500 pages. And Donner looks at the script, and he's just like, this is terrible. Puzo has no affinity for this material. He does not care about Superman. It's just junk it's campy it's actually the later superman movies is what it is it's mm. really silly it's there's a scene where superman encounters telly savalas's character of kojak from tv and telly savalas's his catchphrase like uh, who loves you baby or whatever like it's just like all this junk it's like these people don't care about superman they care to they, i guess they see something in this intellectual property but there's no nothing in the script to indicate they have any reverence for this character and Donner, our hero, does have 
reverence for this character. He grew up reading Superman. Superman triggered his imagination. He's like, if they make this movie, they're going to destroy Superman. And I don't want to see that happen. And I actually think I know how to do this. So he calls his buddy Tom Mankiewicz. So Tom Mankiewicz is interesting. He's the son of Joseph Mankiewicz, who directed All About Eve. And the nephew, that would make him the nephew of Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote, anybody, anybody? They just made a movie. David Fincher made a movie about him called Mank. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, yeah. yes, sir. And so he's got writer blood in him. But he'd become a James Bond writer and a script doctor. He would later do Doctor the Script for Goonies. He's got his fingers on a lot of things that you like and have heard of, Gremlins. But he has the same reaction that Donner initially did when Donner calls him. He's just like, I can't do Superman. I don't know what to do. Like, Superman? Really? So Donner's like, just come over to my house and look at the script that they've sent. See if you can just help me with this. And so Mankiewicz drives over. As he's driving, Richard Donner rolls a joint, gets high. They've actually sent with the script a Superman outfit. Richard Donner puts on, gets high, puts on the Superman outfit. And when Mankiewicz drives up, Richard Donner comes running out in the Superman outfit, dancing around, saying, please, Tom, help me. We've got to make this script. We've got to save Superman. And Richard Donner is a very affable, likable, persuasive guy. So Mankiewicz is just like, okay. And Donner already knows. He's like, there's two things we need. People have to believe that this guy can actually fly, which means we can't cast Al Pacino or anything like that because nobody's going to believe Al Pacino can fly. And we need a love story. And that's what you can help me with. Let's get a love story and let's get real verisimilitude. This has to feel grounded. It can't be. It, It needs to have some reverence for the material. So now Donner has to go and pitch to Salkind, our evil villain, that he wants to not go with their approach at all. And of course, this is going to light the fuse that's going to lead all the way to the end of our story, which is a sad ending. Although everybody made lots of money, so and it's a pretty good movie, so maybe it's a happy ending. But Salkind is living in a hotel in Paris, because of course he is. So Donner flies out to Paris. He goes into the bedroom where Salkind is in bed. He said Salkind never got out of bed. He's just, he really is doing the Eurotrash producer thing. And the first thing Donner says is, Mr. Salkind, this needs a major rewrite. And Salkind says, no, 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 this is a perfect script. And Salkind says, it's not a perfect script. And Donner starts to tell him his story. And Salkind just says, you're wrong. And Donner says, okay, thank you for the trip to Paris. I can't do this. And he starts to walk out the door and Salkind's like, okay, okay. Cause they have got this release date with Warner brothers and this negative pickup deal. Like they need to get this movie done or they'll lose out on the $4 million they gave to Brando and everything else. So Salkind says, okay, okay. Tell me what you would rewrite. You sit there, they argue. Donner thinks he's lost. He doesn't think he's going to get Superman. He drives back to his own hotel in Paris. And then he gets a call from Salkind and he says, okay, okay, we agree. So, our hero, Richard Donner, has to immediately jump into <laughs> making this movie, which they've already, they already have this giant Puzo script. The machine is already worrying. They've got sets that are being built. Like Donner just has to jump into the middle of this with a script that he does not believe in. So you'll see in the title sequence of this movie that it does credit Puzo and a few other people as the script writers. It credits Mankiewicz, I think, as a creative consultant. Mankiewicz is the one that, I think they kept Puzo's structure. Puzo had a good idea of, we're going to do a big Krypton thing. We're going to do a Smallville, a Smallville mm-hmm. and Norman Rockwell thing. And then we're going to do a Metropolis thing. But they really just tried to take, strip out everything that was campy, everything that was silly, find a real love story, find a real emotional through line. And 
Donner's doing all this while he's doing flying tests, while he's trying to figure out how to make the movie work. And the Salkines, all they care about is what it costs. So (laughs) Donner's like, these flying tests that you've done, they're total crap. And the Salkines are like, well, they cost the right thing. You can see hilarious flying tests where they actually took a dummy and just catapulted it into the air like that was one of their first ideas and so you just see this really silly dummy go flailing across it's like what if they had done that with superman but they don't know nobody's ever done flying on this scale everything from the george reeves thing was didn't really work so donner is just he's got all these units already running people building models and brando is on tap all this stuff but he's got a he's got to pull this all together while it's already left the gate and he's got to cast Superman, which is obviously really important. And our villains, Salkinds, like what they, they said to DC, they want Pacino, they want James Caan. They basically want the whole cast of The Godfather, anybody from mm-hmm. you know all those kind of 70s guys. Dustin Hoffman, I mean, can you imagine? Just talk about <laughs> little Jewish <laughs> Superman. Um, uh, so he actually saw Stallone, who had just had a big hit with Rocky. They hit it off. They said it was a very nice conversation, but... They saw Pacino, saw Robert Redford. The producers were so desperate by the end that I think they did a screen test with Mrs. Salkine's dentist just because he looked good. Like they really, no star wanted to touch it. And eventually they started just looking for people, but they couldn't find anybody. Like it's really hard. You might think all you need is a jaw. And, but as Christopher Reeve shows, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, like it's hard to do this kind of thing well. And so they had to find Christopher Reeve, and he was just a humble, all-American. I'm going to do a Ben thing here. Christopher Reeve, humble, all-American Kansas boy who spent all day just eating apple pie off mom's windowsill. Except he didn't. <laughs> Christopher Reeve is a good actor, and he is playing Superman. And Christopher Reeve, or Christopher Reeve, Christopher Reeve, Christopher, <laughs> some kind of Dracula Superman. Christopher Reeve, the thing that you need to understand about him that I want to emphasize is he is an Ivy League East Coaster. That yeah. is Christopher Reeve. He is money. This guy comes from it makes sense. class. He is not. He's a polo player. Yeah, exactly. Christopher Reeve, born September 25, 1952 in New York City. He's the guy who has his the white sweater wrapped around his shoulders. Yeah, it, exactly. He's the bully in the piece in Smallville. His father was a novelist, a poet, a Russian translator, he wrote a book of poetry that the dad did called The Moon and Other Failures, which I think is an awesome name for <laughs> of, of poetry. He wrote uh, The White Monk, an essay on Dostoevsky and Melvo. His father wrote Alexander Bosk, Between Image and Idea. So his father's like an academic. When his father found out he was playing Superman, he said, oh, you're, you've been cast in a production of Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman? And Christopher Reeve had to explain to him, like, uh, no. <laughs> which of course is based on each his parents divorced in 56 he moved with his mother and younger brother to princeton new jersey where he attended nassau street school and princeton county day school where reeve excelled academically ath- athletically and on stage during his school years he developed a passion for acting participated in amateur plays and worked as an apprentice at the Williamtown theater festival so this guy's he's a blue bud that likes to act he Decided to attend Cornell, choosing it over other opportunities to avoid the temptation of immediately becoming an actor. So he's good looking. He, he might be able to just like go get a play or something off Broadway. But he's like, I want to actually hone my craft by going to an Ivy League 
University. So Reeve joins the theater department at Cornell. And during this time, he pops. He receives an offer from a New York City agent. But again, instead of dropping out of college, Reeve stays in college, but he visits, begins visiting New York once or twice a month to explore acting opportunities. And at a certain point, he takes a leave of absence from college and travels to Europe to immerse himself in theatrical productions and study the French theater. I might add to emphasize all this because I want you to understand how much Christopher Reeve is not Superman and how good of a performance he's really giving. He finally transfers to the Juilliard School in New York City. He was accepted into Juilliard's advanced program, very Ivy League stuff, where he developed a close friendship with, does anyone know? He played a big blue genie in... Will Smith. Yeah, Will Smith. (laughs) (laughs) In embryonic form. No, no, no. He is a big, he's a great friend of Robin Williams. John Houseman, the great serious classical actor, says, you need to join the acting company. It's terribly important, Mr. Reeve, that you become a serious classical actor. Reeve is told by another, by Houseman, who's like a famous actor presence of the time. But then Houseman says, unless, of course, they offer you a, I'll change, I'll censor the word here. Unless, of course, they offer you a crap load of money to do something else, in which case you should do that. So that was advice that was given to Christopher Reeve early in life. After completing his first year at Juilliard, Reeve graduated from Cornell in 1974 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. And he got a Broadway play with the blue blood herself, Catherine Hepburn. And the story is that he had to come on and say his first line. He managed to come on and say his first line, and then he promptly fainted in front of the whole audience. And Hepburn turned to the audience and said, this boy's a fool. He doesn't eat enough red meat. But apparently Reeve got better after that. And developed a lifelong friendship with Catherine Hepburn. She told him, you're going to be a big, I can't do a Hepburn, but you're going to be a big star, Christopher, and support me in my old age. And he said, I can't wait that long. So our hero, all-American good guy Donner, he's looking for his Superman. And this kid comes in, Chris Reeve. And he's got a great big sweater and blonde hair. And Donner's first question is, hey, what's under that sweater? And Reeve takes off the sweater and he's just this, skinny set skinny kid and donner's like kid like the guy that we hire has to be a muscle zoo and reeve's like listen mister i was a jock in school and then i went into acting and i lost 50 pounds and donner's like nah you're an actor i can tell like you're not superman you're an actor you're a juilliard guy and reeve's like no i swear i could do it so donner isn't that impressed by the interview but then he goes and sees reeve in a broadway play that night and Reeve, I guess, is playing both the father and the son, and he's doing transformative work, and Donner's impressed. And so they, hire, they go ahead and they hire Reeve. They do already have Brando and Hackman to be the above-the-line kind of guys, so that works out well. Reeve needs to work out to bulk up to become Superman, and so he works out with David Prowse, who is famous as a muscle man and as... Does anyone know? Nope. Darth Vader, he's the body. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's the body of Darth Vader, British dude that kind of has a weird relationship or had before he died a weird relationship with Star Wars because he always resented that they didn't use his voice. So he doesn't make it into a lot of Star Wars retrospectives and documentaries and things, but... He's the body double. He's the body double, yeah. And he would argue the presence and the acting, and he would say he brought a lot to it, and maybe that's not wrong. I don't know. Anyway, 
Donner, our hero, he has his Superman, but he's going to need more than that to make his movie not horrible like the Salkinds would have it be. So he's got to get his Lois Lane, and he gets Margot Kidder, obviously. We all know that. The story that Donner likes to tell is that she came in for her audition, and she like tripped over a prop and stumbled. And just the way that she did that, he wanted to cast her on the spot. He's just like, this is this girl is bumbling and charming and self-effacing, and that's what we want. We need the, obviously, Lois is a very forward kind of a woman, but she's also a very vulnerable kind of a woman at the same time, and we need a character that can be lovable doing both of those things and not just shrill. Easy to go long, wrong with Lois Lane. And so Donner wants to cast somebody that's innately bumbling and vulnerable and that you could believe misspells rapist and all that sort of thing, and Margot Kidder's perfect for that kind of thing. The other story that Donner likes to tell, which I'll just jump ahead and tell right now, is that Kidder had an eye injury on her first day of shooting. She scratched her eye and she couldn't use her contacts. And her performance really came to life that day because she was just wide-eyed and looking around and stumbling over everything. And it had that kind of goofy quality that Donner was looking for, the more vulnerable quality. So he got together with his stagehands and basically contrived, we've got to keep her contacts away. She can never put on her contacts for the rest of this movie. And so they were always coming up with reasons to <laughs> make it so she never could see. But we'll talk about the rest of the cast real quick before we get into the making of the movie. You do have Gene Hackman at the height of his star power. He was not excited about doing this. He is a serious actor. But Gene Hackman's also always not been averse to taking the money. I mean, he did Poseidon Adventure in 72, which is not a great actor's movie but he's on quite a run right now 71 french connection 72 poseidon adventure 73 the conversation 74 he's got that great cameo in young frankenstein where he plays the blind guy that's like ladling soup into frankenstein's lap and all that sort of thing gene hackman of course refused did not want to wear a bald cap or shave his head was not interested in doing the most iconic thing that everybody knows about luke's lex luthor so they got him to agree to do one shot and then they created this conceit where the character is vain and wearing a series of different bad wigs brando got 3.7 million plus a percentage which ended up netting him 14 million for 10 minutes of work you can do the math on how much money he was getting paid <laughs> per minute there did all right for himself wow which like nicholson and batman the thing that they're bringing just as a marquee title, just as a name. They bring gravity to And the gravity, thing. yeah, the sort of, I think that they- It's more than just even the name of incredibility. It's actual gravity. When you open with your Superman movie with Marlon Brando as this like sad scientist father figure. It really <clears throat> brings a lot, anchors it. it yeah, yeah, it anchors it emotionally. Mm-hmm. If what you're going for is verisimilitude, and you're going to have a world as sterile as Krypton. You better have the best actor you can get. Yeah, yeah like he, he put anybody else in his place and nobody makes it through the first 25 minutes of that movie. Yeah, Brando is a world yeah. unto himself, which is what you need. Like, you, I can't, you, I think you're literally right. I cannot think of another actor that could occupy that cheese ball set and make it work. Now, Brando would agree with us that he was important in the movie. <laughs> he and, deserved every penny that he was paid. Well, he actually thought he deserved more he sued the production for 50 million of what he thought he would was additionally owed and that is why he does not appear in the original cut of superman 2 which is super lame they should have just paid him i think because superman 2 even in the the lester cut would be a lot better if it had brando but 
Donner is scared. He needs to, like Brando, famously difficult. He needs to figure out how to do it. So he calls Francis Ford Coppola, who's just on The Godfather. He calls people. Coppola's advice is, he's brilliant. Just keep him talking. Just get him to keep talking, and he'll talk himself out of any problems. And then Donner calls this guy named Jay Cantor, a really powerful agent who's worked with Brando. And Cantor's advice is, he's going to want to play it like a green suitcase. And Donner says, what does that mean? And Cantor says, well, it means he hates to work and he loves money. So if he can talk you into the fact that people on Krypton look like green suitcases, and then you only photograph green suitcases, and he gets paid just to do the voiceover, that's the kind of trick that Brando's going to pay on you, play on you. Donner's like, okay, that's interesting. So he goes to meet Brando at his home to discuss the role. And Brando comes out immediately with, why don't I play this like a bagel? I mean, how do we know that people on Krypton didn't look like bagel, bagels? And Donner had thought that the agent was exaggerating. <laughs> but in fact, the only thing the agent was wrong about is he got a bagel instead of a suitcase. Donner's just like, gee, Marlon, uh, let me tell you something. Donner appeals to Brando, basically just says, there isn't a kid in the world that doesn't know Jor-El and what he looks like and this story. And you know what? He looks like Marlon Brando actually. And so let's just do this for the kids. Brando takes a beat. He looks at Donner. He smiles. He says, I talk too much, don't I? And they figure out the wardrobe and Brando, apparently it was very pleasant. He did come for more money. You can't have a happy ending to a Brando story. Famously didn't come back for the Godfather too, stuff like that. But he was very pleasant during the movie. He was pleasant with Reeve. Brando at this point has given up on memorizing his lines. He likes to, as he would say, just be spontaneous. So when he's holding the baby, when he's holding little Kal-El, the lines are written on the baby's chest. There's a lot of stuff like that. But Robert Downey Jr. wears an earpiece. Robert Downey Jr. has people feed him his lines, and he thinks it makes him more spontaneous. Maybe in both cases, they don't like to memorize, and they've gotten lazy. But also, when you're that brilliant, maybe you're allowed that. I don't know. In any case, there's also a story that a crazed woman came at Tom Mankiewicz with a knife, and Brando jumped up and used his sort of Brando powers of personality to talk her out of stabbing Tom Mankiewicz to death. So those That's kinds of stories really just followed Brando. Oh, and there's, there's one other thing to say about Brando before we move on, which is Brando suggested that the S on the chest be the family crest, which is now standard Superman yeah. comic book lore. But that's just something that Brando threw out as a joke almost. But So, Marla, so you got that scene where everybody has their own family mm -hmm. crests. Right. <clears throat> and that's a cool piece of, I mean, I think that's way cooler than Superman having a dorky S that stands for Superman. <laughs> so all the pieces are in place. The actor's in place. Now the battle is joined between our hero, Richard Donner, and uh, the Saul guys. And Donner's whole thing, he actually writes the word verisimilitude on a little plaque in his office with a picture of Superman. And he's like, we have to make this something that people can actually believe in. But the Salkines don't want that. They are constantly pressing for more comedy, more goofiness, more camp. They will not tell him the budget, only that he's going over it, which is incredibly frustrating and not how you're supposed to do it, not how any director would want to be treated. Like He doesn't know what his parameters are. He just knows that he's over them, which is just if anyone's ever worked for someone like that, it's just an awful thing. So Donner's running around between like different units, the model unit, the special effects guys over here, trying to desperately to pull something off. Mankiewicz is constantly rewriting the script. You have the producers saying, make it silly. And Donner wanting to revere what he sees as the great American myth. And 
they have to get the special effects to work if this movie is going to work. And they are working on that. The, the main thing is the flying. They try catapulting a model. They try actually a model that's built to fly, like a rocket-powered kind of plastic Superman. The way they eventually did it is pretty obvious to see now. They have cables. Anytime Reeve is flying out of a scene and he's actually there, you're just watching a guy, like a Peter Pan stage production or something. You're just watching a crane pull him and get her out of shot. But the other stuff is front projection, which is more complicated than rear projection. It involves mirrors and stuff. Basically, they shoot all the the footage from a helicopter and then Reeve in a studio is just performing in front of a background and christopher reeve gets all the credit for making this look good like they had stunt people and actors and models try it but they didn't but none of these people understood what christopher reeve understood because christopher reeve was a glider pilot he understood aerodynamics he understood how to just move his body so that it looked like he was flying And, and that's something that no one else is so intuitive to us, you know, post fact, like we watch it and we're like, of course, but nobody knew how to do that in a convincing way. And Christopher Reeve apparently Hmm. saved it. Now, like I said, they were trying to make two movies and they weren't going to, they had this release date that was built in. They're not at a certain point. They realized we're not going to finish this. We need to just scramble to get the first movie done. So they steal what's meant to be the ending to the duology, the time travel stuff, and they put it at the end of the first movie. And they're just like, after this movie comes out, we'll have time to figure out what the ending for the second movie is. But they just get it done. Against all odds, our hero, Richard Donner, pulls something together that actually does take Superman pretty seriously. And the movie comes out and it's a giant hit. And it's a critical hit, and critics are snobs. Uh, Comic book movie? What? Yeah, there's there's some... Blockbuster? Popular appeal? No. New York Times says, for Vincent Canby, famous crank Vincent Canby, quote, for me it's as if someone had constructed a building as tall as the World Trade Center in the color and shape of a carrot. Rabbits might admire it. They might even write learned critiques about it and find it both an inspiration and a reward, while the rest of us would see nothing but an alarmingly large imitation carrot. So that was the New York Times. <laughs> oh That's goodness. hilarious. <laughs> but Roger Ebert, our boy Ebert, said, Superman is a pure delight, a wondrous combination of the old-fashioned things we never really get tired of, adventure and romance, heroes and villains, earth-shaking special effects, and you know what else? Wit. That surprised me more than anything. This has big budget, this big budget epic, which was half a decade making its way to the screen, has an intelligent sense of humor about itself. And that's obviously what the better critics the more far-seeing critics say and that is what the audience says and the movie is a huge hit and does really well and donner didn't know whether anything was going to work he finally saw the movie with an audience and was like ah we pulled it off and he's excited and he's going to go work on the second movie and he's like making his travel arrangements and then he gets a telegram from the which simply says you are no longer needed. And that is the end of Richard Donner's association with Superman. We will pick up this story with Superman too, but basically, as everyone knows, they hired a comedy director to make the movie they'd always wanted, which was a campy comedic sort of thing. Richard Donner had actually shot about 70% of Superman 2. Richard Lester 
the other guy reshot a lot of it so that he could get directorial credit. But there is what works about Superman too, and it's a in its theatrical form is the structure that Donner and Mankiewicz and these people had already put on it. A lot of what we don't like is just these guys being like, we need guys to pay to blow off when there's wind from the superhero fight. It's just like really dumb stuff. Although it is important to remember that Richard Donner, while I have been casting him as reverential and while he was, he did allow a lot of camp and silliness into this movie. And some of it's fairly successful. I say in both movies we can get into that but that is the story there's all kinds suck this guy pulled something together against all odds they didn't make it easy for him and then they as soon as it was successful and they could catch their breath they sent him a telegram saying you're no longer needed and then they proceeded to basically get one more good movie out of the leftovers of what he'd done and then just drive the franchise into the ground for the next decades and you could argue superman as a cinematic property has never really recovered like what's worse you can imagine richard donner just doing five or six of these with christopher reeve and them all being really nice really nice like you said ben i think you're right to say richard donner's not like he's not a visionary or an artist or anything like that but he did basically understand this is an american myth and we have to take it with (laughs) some level of gravity for heaven's sake, we've got Brando. He didn't do much to salvage Hackman's dif- disinterest, I would argue, but I guess we could talk about that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that is the story of the making of Superman. All right, fellas, we've been dancing around it for a while now. We'll talk through the film, talk about some individual pieces, talk about that awesome credit sequence, stuff like that. But what are your big picture thoughts on Superman the movie? I was disappointed by how poorly it held up for me this go around mm. you've um, seen it many times in your life i guess though. yeah a lot as a kid mm. and only a couple of times as an adult so i have a lot of nostalgia for the movie it holds a special place in my heart i feel like i like superman 2 better or maybe the donner cut of superman 2 or maybe that's just the little kid in me who likes rocky 4 best and right. who likes Last Crusade best and doesn't know what he's talking about. But I, it's got a lot that works and a lot that's really smart. But at least on, on the whole, I don't know. It's hard to put your, it's like you're going to get 45 minutes before you see Christopher Reeve on film, mm-hmm. on camera, right? And it's, and I don't know. There's a lot to, I don't know. And the way I would put it is almost every scene has something that doesn't work. Almost there's like so many things about this movie that are bad or dopey or have aged poorly that you would think that in summation it would be a disappointment. For me at least, the sum is greater than the parts. Like it adds up to pretty great experience, even though almost not a minute goes by that I'm not like that was lame. That was and my wife, she'd never seen it before and had no interest and she watched it and she was like, That was a really good movie which is saying something, but she was also like what huh like the whole movie she was it's got a bunch of head scratchers in it if you pick it up it's really easy to pick apart like krypton is stupid Mm -hmm. everything about krypton is Mm -hmm. retarded it's just ridiculous Mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time with in smallville with clark kent feeling like a dope although i think smallville itself is actually pretty great yeah i I like the way that the kents are played and everything but 
Yeah. Then we moved to Metropolis and everything is nasty and grimy and dirty. And uh, you forgot about a long trek into the Antarctic. Oh, yeah. A yeah, yeah, big yeah, exposition yeah. dump mm-hmm. of the same information we've already gotten from earlier. Right. Well, you just tend to want to forget all of that. <laughs> and then the Fortress, yeah, the Fortress of Solitude, which is so, such a stupid set design. It's the only idea that we had was it needs to be other and mm. feel other and to feel alien. And so let's make it cold and sterile. I've already, I don't need to retread that. I've already mm-hmm. riffed on that. But then you, it's like, okay, now we're in this like petty crime thing with this Otis guy and this cop's going to get killed in the subway. And <laughs> oh, now here's a woman that's all over the place and mm. oh here's she does the gene those. hackman part you know? it. yep. it's like oh and now superman's gonna go flying with lois lane and she's going to be doing some weird kind of can you read my mind beat poetry it's, it's like wow yeah there's there is a lot i don't know ben before we get too far afield what's your big picture thoughts yeah there's plenty that doesn't work i've i really didn't remember seeing the movie the whole way through i never liked as a kid, I hated everything to do with, like, the ending from California on. Like you did, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, well, let's save that. Let's let's get there in the getting. Well, I I enjoyed it. I don't think I'd want to go back to it because I do. There is something that doesn't work in every scene. I wouldn't want to go back to it for a while, at least. It's, it's I, long. I, it's and... long. There's a lot to be charmed by. I like Brando. I like Smallville. I like Reeve. But then there's a lot of random clunk. Yes. <laughs> Including, I would say, the entire villain stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I just basically think that Hackman doesn't work. He's doing what's required of him. I don't think. Yeah, it's very uninteresting. But just the whole conceit of Lex Luthor as a bumbling villain is just no fun. And uh, You can have a good bumbling villain. I'm not necessarily against it. But Otis, and Miss, it's just like. It's, it's like it's really odd. It's like if the Salkinds just want a cheesy camp, that's where they made their compromise and it's a bad compromise because it means you have no credible threat in this movie. You just have a goofball. And then we're asked to believe that he's going to goof around with his minions and they're going to reprogram a missile with the, while wearing bad disguises. Yeah. It's it's really just dumb. Some of that stuff is pretty disheartening. You're like, Oh no, another scene of (laughs) this. Well, we, at least we didn't have to watch the three hour television version, right? Which has even more of that, apparently. Because there are three different versions out there of this. There's the television version, which you can still find, which is three hours. There's the, there's the Hmm. version that's normal, the theatrical cut. And then there's a slightly extended. By eight minutes. By eight minutes cut. Which I think you saw, right? Or did you confirm that? I just saw whatever was on HBO. That's what I watched. Yeah. I watched on and on Amazon, but you had a scene that I don't think was in mine. Frisky? Did you have Frisky? Of course you did. Yeah, of course he rescues the cat, but it's after that. The joke, quote unquote, the girl getting a slap. It gets cut short. Yeah, there's, so there's a longer frisky. Okay. There's a long frisky okay. scene where Superman actually gives her a speech about fear and stuff that's pretty sweet, which is only in one of the extended cuts. And then Okay. Well, in any case, yeah. Maybe I just missed It's just you I'm get the sure. implic no, you probably just miss it cuz it cuts right at the moment where you know as someone in the audience that she's about to get slapped or spanked. Like the cut is timed with the spank or the slap. Or, but you do hear the you do hear you it. You do hear it. Yeah. Yeah, the but blow it, is, it is the huh. blow and the cut though are at the same moment. So you hear it huh. as you're cutting to the next scene. Right. Interesting. I must have just missed it. All right. It's 
so funny. <laughs> yeah, that it's part of the. I think the genius of how this movie actually works and what's exciting about James Gunn. That James Gunn can actually tell the story of a dark. I, I read some of the discourse on this scene. It's there's a lot of it that's out there on on the I'm frisky sure, scene. I'm sure there is. Um, so yeah, let's just let's, frisky sidebar. So frisky sidebar. Then we'll talk through the movie. Then we'll be done. So. Yeah, I guess what you're saying, well, why don't I let you say what you're saying? Well, okay, so just, if you've not watched the movie, if you're a listener, this is the the thing that we love about Superman is he's, we're getting our introduction to his powers and him going around and saving people and being introduced to Metropolis. And so, of course, we have to have the scene where he takes time to pull a cat out of a tree. He takes time, he pulls the cat out of the tree, gives the cat back to the little girl. The little girl goes inside as Superman's flying away, she's like, mommy, mommy, a man flew up in the tree and got frisky. And mom's like, how many times have I told you not to tell lies? And it's going to, you know. Yeah. And then you hear a whack of some a sort. A whack of some kind, yeah. right? So, so Superman saves the cat and all it does is get the girl a nice big spanking. Mm-hmm. So what's exciting about seeing sort of the machinery of how... So we talk a lot about how it's really easy it's really easy to tell a good villain story mm. and to paint and to draw evil. And it's really, really challenging to draw good. Right. And so when Peter Jackson does it, he just turns everybody into glowy angels. They're shining and they talk like this and right. they're sort of gay. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, it, it very, very <laughs> fey, right. right? And so it's just a real challenge. And Zack Snyder's not even going to bother. It's just like, we can't, I don't know how to make a Superman that feels virtuous or feels like he's otherly... Right. But what this movie does, what I think it cracks is, well, let's focus a little bit less on Superman and a little bit more on just dialing up the background behind him. Mm. Mm-hmm. So at every turn, like this Metropolis is pretty gross. It's pretty evil. It's pretty vile. Like the reporting room is a vile place to be. Like there's just like everything is dirty and gross and nothing is wholesome, mm-hmm. right? So at any turn- Even when they're walking down the street, you'll just linger, the camera will linger for a second while somebody's like, you stole from me or I don't, I don't remember what it was, but there's a specific moment where it's like, huh, why'd they leave that on it? And it doesn't really go anywhere. It's just to add a little flavor of- mm-hmm. Unwholesome vibe, yeah. right? To stand as contrast to just wholesome Kansas boy, Clark Kent. Slash Superman. And that's where I think the genius of what Donner does or what Donner is able to get out of this movie or how it just sort of the alchemy of it works. Christopher Reeve is giving a, a, a performance. I had no comprehension of understanding how great a performance it was as a kid. Right. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people don't because he's, they think of Superman as, or Reeve as just playing a zero. But man, the turn between the distinction between Clark Kent and Superman and just that sort of ability to hold a sort of moral, wholesome center with all of the background noise of chaos and violence and just general like ickiness and unwholesomeness is part of the magic of what makes him feel so strongly virtuous and He's never. Go- he's not going to tell a lie. Like everybody is lying. Like this movie is just everybody's lying and out for themselves. Everybody is lying, and everybody's at got an angle, and it's sex, and it's violence, and it's all these other things. And here he is in the middle of it all. Um, 
And so what's exciting then about Gunn is like, I think Gunn un- can understand and see. Yeah, I think he's the kind of guy who has the vision to be able to look at this movie and look at everything else and be like, okay, yeah, I, I totally get why and how this works. And I'm going to have a lot of fun mm-hmm. building a nice black backdrop mm-hmm. for my wholesome Superman. I don't have to, like, I have a lot of fun telling these kinds of gross stories. And I can just tell as many of them as I want in the background. And it's just going to make my Superman look that much more awesome and wholesome and cool to people. I can pull, I I think I can pull, I think he can pull it off. Mm -hmm. Yes. For the, exactly that reason. And I may have stolen that insight from you at some point, but it's very clearly on display. uh, If you're just trying to watch like and figure out how it works. Yeah, I mean, in the best Superman stories, the mistake with the Superman story, the mistake that Man of Steel kind of makes is Superman's not actually a character. He is a deus ex machina. That's what he was built to be. He's not built with dimensionality. He's not built with interiority. And those are not, those can be flaws if you're trying to bring those things to a place where they're not required. But you can actually build a really intriguing, interesting story around what if do a sex machina existed? What if a God was among us? What if this person that, that now, in addition to that, Christopher Reeve actually does bring some interesting interiority, I think to this character. So I'm not trying to say that there's nothing there, but Superman as a force of nature is actually a legitimate way to tell the story. And we don't need to, we don't need the psychology of feeling cast off by his parents or like, we don't need to find that hook, that boring no, this, Hollywood hook. Doesn't- we don't need any psychology at all. Part of the beauty of what I think is fun about even how Smallville sets up Superman for us is he's embraced the role from the beginning. And we know that there was some struggle with it as a kid of like, okay, like I have to just be better than everybody and because I am better than everybody and that's okay. But he's embraced that role and he's learned it, but he's actually... He's so competent and so strong. He has enough confidence and security to just be bumbling Clark Kent. Like he really can live there. And then when you see him on the balcony with Lois as Superman, the charm and the charisma that he's able to turn on from that strength and confidence, it's just, I don't know, I I think. That's another example of what we're talking about because it's like, it's not from Clark's. It's not from the boy's perspective. Will the boy get the girl? It's from Lois's perspective. And Lois is a 70s, whatever wave of feminism woman that is. And she's tough and she's out for herself and she doesn't want any kids. And her dilemma is, well, there's one guy that I would cook for and have, to have his babies. <laughs> that's right. There's one guy that's strong enough to make me accept that feminine role. Right. That's classic Superman. I mean, like a great Superman story is actually from the little girl who catches the spankings perspective. I'm making this up, but this is like the kind of thing you see in the best Superman comics. Well, my mom's always on my case and she thinks I'm always lying. And then Superman flies into my life one day and he saves my cat. And then that gives me the strength to take it and transcend it somehow. And it's just stories of, I live in a sad, broken little world. I have my regular people problems. But there's hope. But there's hope and there's a savior. I mean, there's a savior out there. There's a Messiah. And so- Superman can't be everywhere. He can't save everyone. But just the fact that he can come and get my cat out of the tree 
one of the think pieces I said. There's I, always the possibility that the next time I'm in some kind of jam, he just might show up. He just might be there. This is a little overblown, but I saw one think piece on the frisky scene because there's a lot of internet. What is that scene doing in the movie? And it's pretty funny because you watch Zack Snyder's movie. You just realize if you had a kid get spanked in a modern Superman movie, people would revolt and throw their chairs but we'll have cities get leveled and uh, yeah. random passerbys get blown up and Superman will break Zod's neck and nobody cares. <laughs> That's just, <laughs> it's just like. He had to. They were going to kill, he was going to kill innocent people. Yeah, and, I know. And to be fair, in Superman too, he punches them into that. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. But, but it's just funny how morality has shifted. Like something like the little girl getting slapped. We would never do that in a million years now. But well, what, we might do it, but then Superman would take their truck and tied up into a pretzel and yeah snyder superman comes back and, and lasers and, and, and off and mom's pick, arm and yeah. says like how you know uh, pick, yeah <laughs> pick on somebody your own size why don't you pick on someone your own size kind of like superman goes back to that guy in the bar and beats the tar out of him and both the donner and the lester <laughs> yes well again <laughs> terrible working out yeah yeah that's right. <laughs> terrible terrible moment there's lots of things that don't work in both in all these movies and it's just too bad well, they're, they're, the one where he gets absolutely trashed that that moment totally works though that does yeah yeah Um, but he should have gone back and given the guy a pamphlet on not drinking or something i don't know i don't know how you handle that but it was cheap the way that that no that all that's all that all gets really really cheap yeah but that's just and really petty too like there's the one gym scene there's a gym scene too where he throws the weights at the guy when the girl's not looking or whatever Oh, I don't yeah. remember this. You yeah. just see creators that don't actually have a coherent vision of who this guy is or why this resonates. Anyway, the thing piece that I saw was like, because in the slightly extended cut, I think Superman actually does get, she's like, Frisky, you bad kitty. And Superman's like, actually, sometimes we get scared and we're not able to do our things. And so the think piece was like, this little girl is stuck in this cycle of not being believed by her parents <laughs> and being tyrannized by this mother. And then she's, enacting it on this cat and then superman comes and says don't do it to the cat like the cat is just scared the superman actually gives her an entire perspective on her life and on whatever trauma she has from her relationship with her mother and then she goes back in and she's still gonna have to deal with now that is overblown that is more than the filmmakers i think mostly they were just they just thought it was funny that in a cynical kind of way that superman could doesn't solve every problem. <laughs> they love that joke so much, by the way, they do it twice. It happens in the damn scene in Superman 2. I forget which cut or whether it's both cuts, but Superman rescues a little boy and then... Oh, Niagara Falls. Uh, Niagara Falls, yeah. Yeah, and, the and, dam's in. And then the mother mm-hmm. is like, how dare you embarrass me? And she starts slapping him oh, as, yeah. as yeah, Superman. Oh, yeah, this. So, so they thought that was so funny. They love the idea that... <laughs> But I think I think there is a... There is, a, there is actually moral content. It's not just a joke. It, it is the idea that Superman's not fixing everything and that, it, you know, it is the diamond against the black velvet. It is the, uh, this world kind of sucks and parents suck and you take beatings for things that aren't your fault. And that's what Superman's here to fix, but also he can't fix everything. But just having him there means at least you don't drown in Niagara Falls. So anyway, I think we, can we close the frisky tab? Yeah. All right. So let's go through this flick. So we start with the credits Scene. Actually, if we start with this really dorky black and white, here's an old comic book. Comics sure are lame, huh? And then 
the John Williams theme. Mm-hmm. It's a statement of intention, I think. It's like, a, hey, remember that lame thing? Remember how you thought this movie was going to be lame? Here's like a little black and white thing. Gets some nostalgia going. But then state of the art, John Williams, amazing theme. Which we haven't talked about John Williams. The only Three-dimensional. Three-dimensional. The credits come whooshing past. It's just like, this is not your daddy's Superman right here. It would be like if the new Mario movie started with 8-bit Mario just jumping around and then <laughs> blew out into and maybe it does Which for it all it does yeah does, okay. <laughs> there you go well, I wondered yeah but yeah and then it becomes a plotless meaningless okay never mind yeah like like the superman movie yeah but man i miss credit sequences i love like just the amount of anticipation you can build just with music and a few simple special effects here it's like this movie would not play the same without this mm-hmm. sequence. It's And John Williams is doing most of the work, but if you're hiring John Williams, let him do the work. I've heard John Williams talk about this. He's like, the thing that I love about Stephen and George is that they write into their movies silent parts where I can do the work, whereas a lot of directors just don't Score actually it. give me space. There's dialogue or sound effect. Like, but these guys want me to lead the way some of the time. And then we go to Planet Krypton. Do we all agree that Krypton actually basically sucks? Yeah. In this uh-huh. part of the movie. Yeah. I like the sentencing of Zod and Nan and Ursa. That's pretty fun. But it's like Marlon Brando walking around in foil, tin foil, and he's got this little, I don't know. I guess it's the best part of that whole extended sequence. But yeah, this whole thing feels like Doctor Who or... Also, I just don't buy the fact, I've never really bought this fact, the fact that about the lore in any of its versions, that he doesn't just leave the planet. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I found that it's hard to dumb. believe with this one. Pretty stupid. Right. And pretty bad parenting. Come on. Yeah. It's just lame. You, you have to have a better way to keep him on the planet if you're going to do that. I love the sort he of. decides to have the noble. I won't contribute to panic as everybody dies around me. I will die with them all. So like, come on. So but I will send my son away to be raised, I guess, hopefully. Guys, just like. <laughs> I mean, you're combining two sort of Jew- Jewish myths, so to speak. You, you've, you've got the Old Testament prophet of it all. The Babylon's coming, but no one will believe me. Everybody wants to be complacent all these false prophets are talking. You've got that. And then you combine that with the story of Moses and they're both really resonant, but it doesn't quite, it's like, okay, if you really are, you know that Babylon's about to raise the city and kill everybody, then it's just bad world building. Yeah. It's just bad world building. I could buy a version of you're going to cause mass pain. No, I couldn't. There's no way to make this work. I mean, obviously the reason they don't want him to leave is because everybody will panic and leave, but from Jor-El's perspective, that's a good thing. Of like, course e- it is. Even if people rampage and overturn fruit carts and... Some that, people die in the process. Uh, crystal, crystal carts, Nathan? Yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> crystal carts. That's all that they have on crypto. Uh, it's still better than anything else that could happen. It's better than everybody getting blown up. But Marlon Brando, like one of you guys said, he earns his paycheck and he brings some gravitas to it. He's quite good. He's mm-hmm. He's there to play. He's got a British accent for some reason that I don't quite understand but it is interesting to me how much this movie feels the need to set the table like it doesn't trust its audience to know the superman lore like now you'd be like well everybody knows and is on board with this we live in a nerd saturated culture but this movie's like we also live in a culture that has had this movie around for 
45 years or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it makes sense that it would be that way. It is just different. Like, you don't need that much of, like, if James Gunn wants to spend no time setting up who Superman is and he wants to just jump into telling a Superman story. We'll all be here for it. We'll all be here for it. And no one will be confused. And even if you brought your grandma, she wouldn't be confused. Anything else you guys want to say about Krypton or any of that? I hate it. It's really claustrophobic. I hate bad Doctor Who sci-fi sets and world worlds where like old old Star Trek stuff where it just where you just feel trapped <laughs> on a small set in a world that's supposed to be expansive. It's pretty lame. It's lame. But then we get to then we have a, like a long sequence of Brando giving exposition. Like this movie over explains. It really is like at pains to Brando gives the same some of the same lines of dialogue multiple times just to make sure we understand. The rule, rules that will later, even in the third act of this movie, be blithe about. We want to make sure to do as much table setting as we possibly can. We get to Superman landing on Earth, meeting the Kents, Jonathan and Martha Kent, our Norman Rockwell adventures. And Donner said, we did Ten Commandments, Norman Rockwell, and then newspaper picture were like our three parts newspaper comedy his girl friday or something Mm -hmm. so and reeve by the way is playing cary grant and it's very consciously modeled on how cary grant would do something like that kind of bumbling bringing up baby kind of stuff anyway what do you guys think about this the smallville stuff i enjoyed a lot i mom and pa kent are really great yeah they bring a lot for almost no screen time Amazing how little screen time Jonathan Kent gets. He's one of the most emotionally affecting parts of the movie. And oh, the little, yeah. little touches of humanity. Just him saying, oh no, when he realizes he's about to have a heart attack. Yeah. It's just that. Yeah. that really. Just that. He's going to, we set that up really obviously. Careful, your heart. And and then, oh, come on, let's run to the bar and I'll race you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that oh no moment is, yeah, really sweet. <laughs> it's great. Mm-hmm. And it's just the right level of. It's always interesting to me when a filmmaker can do something this sentimental, this Norman Rockwell, and not make you want to just vomit. And I don't know exactly what the trick to that is, but underplay it. Yeah, underplay <clears throat> it. I think it's. Yeah, you can't sentimentalize a subject that's already sentimental. You just have to aim your camera well, and shoot. For and, goodness' sake, it's just everybody's grandpa. Yeah, and everyone's grandma, and, and, everyone's, and everyone's dad someday too. Yeah, and there's no like. Any, they don't try to make it any more or any less than that. And yeah, I love that they don't spend a lot of time on, well, I'm leaving you, mom. I got to get, she's just like, I knew this day would come. And there's a cynical person watching it so many years later. I'm like, oh, okay, I hope he visits her. So, you know, like, uh, this is a hard thing. Yeah. But that's not, you're not supposed to think about that. It's just the myth. Zack Snyder solved that problem by having Zod grab her by the neck and then... <laughs> Superman, leave my mother. How dare you threaten my mother? Well, he, <laughs> things blow up around them. It was not a good way to <laughs> solve that problem. No, but the callback later in Superman, Batman v Superman, <laughs> Dawn of Justice, where Martha. it was Martha. Yeah, that was totally, that was good. Because you know when you're dying, you say not mom. You say your mom's name. Right. That, like when you're yeah. in pain and you're calling out for your mother, you always use her Christian name. Yeah, that's what everybody does. That's the one logical flaw I just exposed in that movie. Other than that. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I do really like outrunning the train. I think that's one of the f- most fun oh, yeah. practical effects. Yeah. And that is just a guy on a crane 
being pulled along next to a train obviously sped up but yeah that's great okay superman says bye to mom and then i have no patience for this part of the movie maybe you guys want to make an apology for it but i didn't mind i was like he's gonna go find himself or whatever uh, yeah i was that's when i started checking the clock to be like how many how deep into the movie are we Mm -hmm. this is at least an interesting bit of homework to be doing right now like how far in are we gonna get checking my watch pulling it up and being like huh 40 minutes that's where i think like 45 minutes obviously for this big story they're telling we need the fortress of solitude we need jor-el back but if they if we just went if we just if you just cut that scene out of this movie the movie plays exactly the same nobody would question or care that superman is suddenly superman and revealing him like You'd be like, oh, yeah, he went away for a few years. He showed up. He's getting a job. He's Superman. Like, yeah, I, if we had just cut to Metropolis and Clark Kent, that would have been just fine. Yeah, if you just, if you literally just lifted this out, did nothing else, I don't think anyone would mind. But it's... And I like the idea of him having his sort of... Um, well, he's had a crisis, right? His dad, as he knew it, died. Then it was revealed to him that he's he wasn't really his dad. And now he has to go find himself and figure <clears> out he already knew that, right? That's the idea. Like, I, I always got the impression he always knew. Well, he gets, he definitely he gets, gets. He goes and finds the thing, right? He goes and finds the crystal, but the crystal's like calling to him because it's the time or something. It's like the impression Jonathan Kent gives you in that scene before he dies is that he's when always. When you came he's, to he's, us or something like that. Yeah, he's said, always yeah. raised Clark to know, like, you're from out of this world. and Typologically, it doesn't <laughs> matter. It doesn't matter whether no, Moses thinks he's a prince of Egypt or knows Uh he's actually Jewish. It doesn't matter whether how much Jesus knows he's divine. And this is the template we're following. Moses and Jesus both discover something about themselves and then they go out into the desert Uh and they get the call, the burning bush. Jesus faces temptation and then Uh they come back empowered to, to do their missions. That's uh, sorry. I don't want to be blithe about the actual story of Jesus, but that is, it's just typologically what we're drawing on here. And maybe it's why you do need him to go into the Antarctic, kind of go into exile and face himself. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I think some kind of an actual test or I guess it is just the Moses story. He just, he meets his father in the, de- in the, in exile and then comes back as the hero. Mm-hmm. So yeah, typologically it fits with Moses perfectly fits with Jesus pretty well, which makes sense. But you sure do have to put up with a lot of, we're going through a star field and Marlon Brando's narrating stuff. That part drags. Yeah. But then Christopher Reeve comes out in his Superman suit and he flies. And then we go to Metropolis. And like Jake said, the city kind of sucks. And Lois doesn't know how many peas there are in Rapist. And suddenly we're in like a new newspaper comedy and it's every newspaper office must be his girl Friday or the boss must be like a lovable curmudgeon and everybody must be talking over each other. I'm being a little unfair because of course Superman was developed in the forties and all these cliches that they're drawing on Superman drew on the original versions of and mm-hmm. helped create. So you can't say, no, oh, Perry White's just doing his girl Friday. Of course he is. And I like all this stuff. I like all the, I don't know. What do, you, what do you guys think about Margot Kidder as Lois Lane? Oh, she's fun. She's fun. She is a good comic actress. She's got just enough. They have a good... I'm losing words here because I just had lunch. But chemistry, that's the word. They have good chemistry. They have good chemistry. They do. 
I mean, I think she's from the same school as Marion Ravenwood a couple years later where... Yeah, she's the obvious comparison point. It's pretty much yeah trying to play the same character. The woman who's tough to the whole world, but weak at the knees for exactly one man, our hero. And although Marion takes a little while to reveal that. But Marion kind of has the Clark relationship with Indiana Jones mostly and... Mm-hmm. only kind of sidles up to him as Superman a couple times and then she smashes a mirror in his face and it's hilarious. And then we cut to a comedy shot of a ship with him screaming. But yeah, the, man, if James Mangold would just understand this way of writing a strong woman, it, like what we are, what I'm dreading we're going to get with Phoebe Waller-Bridge in this new Indiana Jones movie is just an omnicompetent girl boss who can do everything. Yep. And who's woke. And who's But that's not interesting. Like you want a character that has man or woman. You want a character that has vulnerability. The thing about Marion is she's not strong enough to just beat up the Nazis, but she's smart and she can take care of herself and she'll run into a thing and find a frying pan to hit the guy. Like she's tenacious, but she's not resourceful. Yeah. She's got qualities that we would all look for in a woman or in a wife, but she's not, she doesn't transcend her sex. She's just a strong, vibrant example of it. She's all woman when it comes to our hero, and that's Lois Lane. The fun of Lois Lane is that she's actually a woman, even if she doesn't want to be. And I think that Margaret Kidder has a nice line in that kind of thing. Yeah, and then we're going to get to Superman starting to reveal his powers. He's going to catch that bullet and that's, and then literally smile to the camera. Like just uh, <laughs> Christopher Reeve is really good at that, doing that kind of thing without making you despise him or the movie. He'll just like wink at, wink at you like he, he almost breaks the fourth wall. And John Williams, for all his virtues, he's kind of corny about the way that he'll give a little musical trill yep. there. I mean, mm-hmm. I like it, but John Williams does do something that I hate in this movie, which is maybe the movie asked for it and he just gave them what they wanted, but he, he writes like bumbling comedy music. Yeah, the villain. It's Otis. He is stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Christopher Reeve, obviously great as Clark Kent, but... Yeah, we get Superman saving a bunch of stuff. Do you guys feel like that held up or like... It's pretty great. Yeah. I I think it's the template. And the only thing that comes close... Well, I would say the one thing that maybe supersedes that, passes it up, is Amazing Spider-Man's similar... Well, Amazing Spider-Man, and especially part two, it's... He's one of the only heroes that's actually allowed to do a lot of hero stuff, like rescue people, like movies. Even yeah, I think it's the opening. Is it the opening scene of Amazing Spider-Man 2 that I'm thinking of? The kid in the car or whatever. Yeah, the kid, the science project. Maybe that is Spider-Man. No, that's Amazing Spider-Man 2, but that's like a midpoint scene. That's later. That's not opening scene. It's probably 20, 30 minutes in or something. He's look, he's, yeah. He just gets a couple of sequences that have nothing to do with the plot of him just Spider-Maning out, right? It's great. And he's going to stop and the, some kid's getting beat up in the back alley and he's going to help him fix his science project and mm-hmm. tell him it's cool and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Little things like that. Super sweet. Like, I really, yep. It just makes you realize how many superhero movies, even the ones that we love, are fixated on violent action. And there's a whole other kind of fantasy that is really powerful, which is the fantasy of... Someone saving you, someone what fixing Superman problems. Or Spider-Man was my Spider-Man. What right. if he was my hero? What if he could fix my actual real life problems? And that's the thing that both of those movies or both those sequences mm-hmm. do. And I can't think of 
another superhero movie where you really see that sort of thing. That'd be a large scale plot. Like we've got to get the people off of the Guardians just did this. We got to get the kids off the thing. And that, that can be sweet. We got to get all of Sokovia off of right. the rock that they're now on. Which is obviously. And we leave nobody left behind because we are just like big time commenting on Snyder, what Snyder did. Right. And if Snyder had just added a scene of Superman grabbing a little girl and getting her out of the way, that would have gone a long way just to symbolize the fact that this guy even cares what's happening. But Snyder does not care what's happening, which is what makes him terrible. But yeah, I actually started tearing up weirdly just a little bit during the helicopter scene of all things. And I think it was just because I'm so used to scrolling on Twitter and seeing news stories about car accident. Like it's just like everything's terrible all the time. And just the fantasy of a guy who shows up and fixes things. Just like that helicopter accident didn't go bad. Nobody died. That Jewel Robert, he went to jail. Like <laughs> that cat is out of that. Yeah. I had a cat stuck in a tree. It was stuck for 10 days. It almost died. And finally we had to knock it off. The tr- it was getting so cold that we got a painting extension pole and knocked the cat out of the tree. And it almost like I, I would have loved to have Superman just steal my cat like, or steal my cat. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved to have Superman save my cat. Like just the idea that there's somebody that can just show up and make things right that are wrong in the world is such a powerful fantasy. And it's weird how much superhero cinema does not tap into that at all. It's exactly what is most potent and most powerful about Superman in particular, like the mythos around Superman in particular is that this is nobody too small for him. Right. And there's no problem too small for him. And if he's got a chance, he can't do everything, but he'll do everything that he can. And it's just, he's just not above, he's just not above the cat in the tree. Every bit of responsibility he's able to take, he takes. That logic doesn't hold up when you just think about Clark Kent sitting at a desk at a typewriter. But still just the same that is what people love and play with about superman and that's why the movie has the cat scene that's why everybody's favorite panel from or one of the one of the great and most famous and favorite panels in all of superman is the all-star superman yeah. panel that you the girl su- gonna commit suicide and he just comes and talks to her yeah and he's in the middle of saving all fixing all these great big problems because he's going to die and and, oh he's going to stop and take time to just talk to the girl who's about to commit suicide right and it taps into you just are so hungry for somebody to care i didn't have a great relationship with my dad but i've still got that feeling of man when i was five there was someone who could just kiss my boo-boo and everything was better there was the world made sense because there was someone who just had it covered and we the, felt safe. The fantasy of Superman, the fact that he can give that to a cynical adult, that he can give that to Lois Lane or to Jimmy Olsen or to us, to me as an audience member, it's such a powerful, powerful thing. And it is why I'm excited about James Gunn. Cause I think James Gunn can, he has said he wants to make a movie about kindness, whatever mm-hmm. that means. And I hope it means exactly what we're talking about that. He just wants to be like, here's the world's dad and he's going to fix all the problems. Yeah, we're going to have a horrible, nasty world. And he's going to basically try to do a not sappy version of 
the thing that people do in Starbucks lines, right? Where you pay for everybody behind you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what we want. Yeah. And it'll be really sweet and sentimental without being sappy and it'll make you cry. And I think guns, whatever guns doing is going to end up building towards that all-star Superman story arc. I think that's just inevitable because I think that's who he, I think that's who he is. And I think that's how he wants to reclaim Superman. I, yeah, I, I have no reason to believe that except that's, I just, you really want to, I want to, yeah. and some of that would be wish fulfillment, but also I feel like some of it's in guardians three. Yeah. I feel like that's what I'm watching in terms of his, the stories that he's telling in his own evolution, the story that he's telling about himself and his own personal growth. I think that's what he's communicated to me reading between the lines as to where he's at. Now, okay, maybe he's just a slick, cynical salesman, but he sold me, so I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little scared because if Harley Quinn or Rocket Raccoon caught a mom disciplining a daughter after they got the cat out of the tree, they'd vaporize her arm and say, I can't give a hand to your parent discipline. Or they're like, right. I'm like that. Yeah, but he- Taking revenge on what's wrong. I, I think so, yeah. I think- and I think he knows to draw those lines with Superman. And I think that he can get away with putting any number of other characters in his movie that would and maybe do do that exact sort of thing. You just have to keep Superman clean. Superman can't let it happen if he's there. That's the things right. I'm afraid of. He can't approve of it and turn a blind. He can't wink. Like he has to just always think there's a better way. That's and, right. And enact it. And he has to win in the end. Like... His better way has to win. Yes. He has to leave the world a better place. And so when he dies at the end of the All-Star Superman arc, the world is actually a better, more hopeful place for having had Superman there. And there's hope. I'm all for it. I hope that that's exactly. And I think the other thing is that you can say about Gunn is he loves the comics. He loves, he knows what makes a good Superman story as long as he's able to get his own demons out of the way enough. Which is what he's told us that he's done. Right. And even the fact that, which we didn't know and so didn't comment on, the fact that Drax Drax is actually carrying out the high evolutionary, the high evolutionary yeah, in, in saving sweet. him. So he, we actually know for a fact that... It wasn't just another cheap Marvel... Cop-out. We're not going to kill this guy. We're, we're just, just going to passive leave him, passively we're, leave him to a certain doom. No, they actually carried him out and saved him. Right. And it's... There's a shot of it in the VFX guy, and everybody's like, yeah, that's who it is. That's who it was supposed to be. It got whittled down, but yeah, no. They carried him out of there. The James Gunn actually has a little empathy, maybe even misplaced empathy for the high evolutionary. I'm all there for that guy. Everybody deserves a second chance. Isn't that what? That's what someone says to Adam Warlock. That's that's what Groot says, I think, to Adam Warlock. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, after Superman saves all this, people saves Air Force One, you get a lot of fun. I mean, the other thing that Superman movies in particular thrive on and that Marvel weirdly has forgotten to give us in most of its movies is you really want audience surrogates reacting. You just want the people on the street. You want the, I mean, I know everybody makes fun of it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, but it adds the fun of these movies to have the guys in Air Force One looking out the window and Mm -hmm. not believing it and rubbing their eyes and. Don't look just 
Spider-Man movies have that. Spider-Man does have it. Yeah, I think many of the Spider-Man people have had a good line in that. And a sense of identity for New York. And they have a sense of identity for Metropolis. Okay. Now we have our romantic evening. (laughs) Superman shows up and we go flying. And I don't know. It's a little weird. It does go on and on. I think when it's just John Williams doing the work with his music, it's pretty magical. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a bit of a... Aladdin and Jasmine moment. It's fairly transcendent. But then Lois Lane sure does go into a poem. And it sure is uh, stupid. Stupid. <laughs> and the I understand my understanding is that Margot Kidder was actually supposed to sing it and they were like, that doesn't work to have a song. And so they just wow. had her recite it. She wasn't gonna open like the character of Lois wasn't gonna sing it, but you were gonna hear like a song on the soundtrack sung by Margot Kidder. So instead they had her recite it. And yeah. Boy, does that not work. Boy, does that not work. You also get, as these movies do, even the best of them, of these old Superman movies, you get the kind of weird color of her panties stuff. Like just, that feels a little out of character. Something for dad. Yeah, something for dad. Well, Mrs. Teschmacher. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of something for dad, yeah, let's talk about Miss Teschmacher. Let's talk about Lex Luthor and let's talk about Otis. I don't like any of this stuff. I just think... Hackman's super lame. The comedy's not funny. The lair isn't that cool. The plan is stupid. It's all very lame. Does anybody want to make any defense for any? And I don't like the way that Miss Teschmacher dresses. I'm against it. Nope, uh, we just wanted a Bond girl in there. Yeah. Is she actually? Or are we just... No, I don't think so. I just mean, that's kind of... Yeah, just... That's, that's the, the role. Yeah, that's yeah, the coding. Really yeah. is like the something for daddy. She's the villain henchman who's going to end up having the hots for... Our protagonist. Yeah, I don't like the fact that she say it feels like kind of a weird Joseph Campbell wouldn't approve of this that she saves Superman. I don't mind someone saving Superman, but it just doesn't feel like Superman has to And then she kisses him. Overcome it. Yeah, it feels it's a little creepy. I mean, I don't like it. Yeah, it's so we got Mitch Tessmacher, we got I like Gene Hackman, I think he's great, but he's just miscast here. He doesn't have anything interesting to say. <laughs> he's a pretty good Lex Luthor. Kevin Spacey? Yeah. Kevin Spacey is I know actually it ain't awesome. Jesse Eisenberg, so it must be Kevin Spacey. Yeah, Kevin Spacey was born to play Lex Luthor. It's too bad he didn't appear in a better movie. Uh, we're, yeah. We are going to have to do Superman Returns after this. Year. Yeah. At some point. I've we'll been, been wondering it. about that, too. Yeah. But yeah, so... Uh, we should just treat it like a trilogy. and Yeah, right? That's yeah. what I think. Maybe, yeah, well, let's do it. Yeah, but Gene Hackman sucks. He feels like a middle manager. He doesn't feel like a super villain. He feels like a the guy that owns the Arby's that you work for that you don't like that much. But he comes up with a goofball plan, and we spend a lot of time with him enacting this plan, wearing different disguises, while John Mil- Williams' music tells us how whimsical and funny this all is. But I like how some of the lines are even, like, you know what the, num- what the number 200 has in common between me and you? Oh, oh yeah. man, there's it's a lot your of weight in my IQ. Like what? There's so many dumb jokes like that. It, that that feels like, like that doesn't even work. That feels in, like old comic level. book writing. Like you always have these guys who they have to write the script and maybe writing isn't actually like that feels like the kind of joke that would be in Superman comics of a certain vintage. But yep. I still don't want to see it in this movie. It's, <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's just like something walked in from the 1960s Batman. It's like all the campy stuff that Donner was fighting to keep out. It just it's bad but yeah they cause a big earthquake and superman it's gotta fix the fault line fix the fault line i thought that was cool yeah <laughs> where he goes underneath the earth's crust 
lifts it up. I like all the it's really fun. The model the model work is cool. It's fun to see some of these some of the more successful old special effects with the dam breaking and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Like I said, I always love the train thing. Yeah, but then Lois dies a brutal death. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> the dumbest thing in all of cinema happens. <laughs> yep. I'm sure there's many internet videos where nerds complain about this. So I don't know. I'm sorry to be that guy, but I hate time travel so much. I hate the time tuners in Harry Potter so much. Turners. Turners, whatever. Yeah. They should have been called time tuners. That would have been cooler. Once you can do this, why does anything? I know you're not supposed to ask. I know you're supposed to just go with it. I know I'm being the fun police here, but why would anything that Superman doesn't like ever happen again? Why would Sirius Black die? Why would Vol... Ah. Just come up with a plot reason why we can't... They destroyed all the time turners. I know they did. Right before it happened. Did they really? Yeah. I don't remember. No, all the time turners have been confiscated and are like in the Ministry of Magic. Fact check me on this. I'm pretty sure this is how No, it I think you're right. I think you're right. But They're all there. And the only reason that... So the only real plot hole is why on earth did Dumbledore think it was a good idea... Or McGonagall think it was a good idea to give Hermione Granger a banned time turner from the Ministry of Magic when they're so volatile and so dangerous so that she can get an extra class in. Yeah, but Dumbledore's just an idiot that always does crap like that, so I guess it works. Or he's a genius who knew that it would be then there on hand at the end for the saving of Sirius Black and Buckbeak. But yeah, they all end up getting destroyed in that fight, like all of them. And so now there are no more time turners in the wizarding world because they were all there and they all got destroyed in that fight. All right, great. It all makes sense. Yeah, that is a very compelling fix. If I'm Dumbledore, I'm just going <laughs> to hang on to one of those babies. Like, <laughs> come on, keep one in a drawer. Like. <laughs> yeah, if you can manage to get one from the Ministry of Magic and give it to a student, you might as well just keep one lying around. Yeah, and you're, you can't tell me Dumbledore couldn't be like, sorry, Ministry, I lost it. What are you going to do, arrest me? I mean, you guys suck, just like all bureaucracy does. Wait, hang but... on a second. Let me go back in time to the part where you figured this out and right. uh, fix that. Yeah, do a <laughs> Kenneth Branagh curse on <laughs> yeah, you or something. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think Superman is the real time turner. Because <laughs> well. he turns that globe. Now, he's not fast enough to catch two missiles, but he is fast enough to turn the Earth's rotation back back and circumnavigate. See, this is all about relativity, <clears throat> right? So if he just mm-hmm. goes fast enough in one direction, he's the one who's actually traveling in time. This movie sucks <sighs> relative like to... Flash. Right. Yeah, but he's not right. fast enough to catch the missile. It, it, okay. Yep. I got it. Well, he had to go it to Jersey sense. first. Well, he, it takes him a long time to catch that missile. You think if he could circumnavigate the Earth in 10 times in under a second, he could get the missile in... One missile going hundreds of miles in less than 20 seconds, but he can't. <sighs> Did you actually do this math or are you just making it up, Ben? Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that <laughs> I'm just good at this kind of math, Jake. <laughs> well, <laughs> your math makes sense emotionally. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's all that matters to me. <laughs> These are two minutes that are going to go down as the best in all of podcasting history. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, I mean, your math makes more emotional sense. It makes more me sitting there watching a movie sense than their math does. And so your math wins. Like, it's dumb. 
at least don't insult me by spending 40 minutes at the top setting up all this lore and making it so ponderous if you're gonna then act like none of it matters and we're just in a stupid comic book at the end so i don't know and that is the dumb thing about the donner cut is that it uses that again i was gonna say that but then i didn't but in any case superman saves the day it does that's okay spoilers <laughs> i i know this because i read it but the way that the donner cut film ends is that instead of giving lois a magic kiss so that she forgets he was superman he is superman he turns back time to all the way to the time before he accidentally freed the villains from the fandom zone everything is undone no superman 2 plot actually happened Yay, Superman is the winner. And that's how Superman 2 ends, as I understand it. If you think, if you think about it as... Really? Yes. Maybe I haven't actually seen the Donner cut. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> At least the Lester cut wasn't that dumb. I mean... Uh, my I don't know, suspicion based on reading things like that is that, yes, it's nice that the Donner cut takes out a bunch of cornball humor, but uh, I don't think it actually works. I don't think... Unfortunately, I think Donner just didn't get to shoot slash conceive of mm-hmm. what would have what would have actually been the good version i mean the lesser cut has so many really dumb things like that when he throws the styrofoam s at non or the magic kiss mm. it's like it's ridiculous <sighs> i know the i mean the donner cut has brando which is sure something but mm-hmm. i don't know jake was saying beforehand that he remembered before we started recording that the donner cut's superior and i think it probably is but I was like, I don't know how far you want to go out on that limb because I think we might find that there just isn't actually well, a version of Well, my memory is that after, so several years back, I watched Superman the movie in a friend's home theater and it was an awesome experience. Watched it with my kids, my whole family. It was super cool. Shout out to Josh again. Thanks for that. That was a really cool experience. Hmm. Amazing home theater set up in his house. And then I... Th- turned around and showed my kids Superman 2, and I think I checked out the Donner cut at the time because I hadn't seen it, and it was... So that's my memory, and I remember thinking, huh, I like this, and this isn't as silly as Hmm. I remembered it, and that's nice. But it still gives me all most of the same memories of most of the same story and most of the same stuff, but just with less of a silly, campy vibe to Hmm. it. So that's my memory, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, we'll find out. Like I said, I don't know what to do. Maybe we should just decide on mic right mm. now. We have to represent both cuts on this podcast. I don't know how excited I am about watching both cuts, though. I think... Yeah, if we could each watch a cut. Yeah, I think we probably just need to split them up. We could each watch two-thirds, <laughs> and then one of us could watch a third of each in that way. I know I want to watch the Lester cut just because I have nostalgia for it, and I remember it like... I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't have this discussion on Mike. We'll figure it out. We have to talk about both cuts. It might be a little deadly for us all to have to watch both cuts. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think I feel that way. We'll yeah, figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it off. Too. We'll figure it out, off Mike, folks. Uh. But yeah, Superman saves the day. But it does actually make sense. Putting the time travel at the end of part two does at least make sense of one of the things that purists always complain about, which is Superman killing Zod and. Ursa non and so casually like they don't die and as Donner and Mangowitz conceived it they just go back in the phantom zone I've also heard people say that them falling into that 
misty crevasse doesn't represent death. Like if you know the lore, they're actually falling it back into the phantom zone or something like that. But the way it <laughs> yeah, plays, right. the way it plays to the someone who doesn't know the lore is, well, I've successfully stripped you of your superpowers. So I'm going to now execute you. And Lois Lane is going to say, you're a real pain in the neck. And, and then execute the girl because girls can fight girls and boys can fight boys. That's how these things work or how they used to work before society crumbled. Who ruined everything? Society. Yeah, society did ruin a lot. We, we needed Superman here to say... We live in a society. Yeah. No, we needed Superman to say, that's not how biology works. Men and women are different. Remake that Star Wars movie, Kathleen Kennedy. Superman could have done a good job of running Lucasfilm. That's my contention. So, Superman saves the day. He delivers Luther and Otis straight to prison. Just takes them into a <laughs> prison yard, which is very Batman 66 again. <laughs> And gives a nice speech to the warden or whatever. Until they get a fair trial. Until they get a fair trial. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and uh, he flies away into the sunrise as John Williams' theme beguiles us with its awesomeness. And that is Superman. The first one, apparently when Lester took over, I really should save this for next podcast, but when Lester took over, he had one meeting with John Williams to talk about how they were going to continue the music and John Williams was so frustrated by the meeting that he walked out and said, I will never work with that man. And John Williams did no more music for this. Uh, of course, they repurposed his themes, but John, this is the suckage of everything post-Donner is. <laughs> and if you see John Williams, he doesn't seem like a very chill guy. Like you, you feel like it would be fairly easy to not make John Williams angry in a meeting. Yeah, he seems pretty easy to work with. Yeah. Maybe not, but. I mean, I'm sure he's exacting and all, but, but, you know, if you just went in there and treated him like the maestro he is and had a little respect for his ideas, but also tried to have a productive push and pull artistic collaboration, I'm sure. I feel like the three of us could get John Williams to do a score just fine, but not Richard Lester, not the Salkinds. <laughs> right. They're the worst. They're the worst. Folks, that is your podcast on Superman. Ben, how many crystals oh and the way that luther figures out but how does he figure it out again i'm trying to remember. i don't know it it doesn't make <laughs> it just it, doesn't make any sense he's just like i've done the math mr yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that, that was dumb that was dumb yeah how many crystals yeah how many crystals out of how many crystals do you figure are in the <laughs> fortress of solitude a lot but it's a whole lot we'll say twelve thousand. how many crystals out of twelve thousand do you give to superman the movie out of 12,000? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. 8,000. 8,000. I was wondering if you might not say 8,000. Huh. Jake, you know, you know me well. Say question, same question? I'm going to... I was going to give it 9,000. I'm going to give it 10,000. And the reason I just bumped it is because I think one of the things we have to give it points for, or I feel compelled to give it points for, is being the first. Yeah. It's special effects, it's score, the opening credits the flying of it all, the guts to take a superhero movie and try to make it feel grounded and make it play to the masses in a way that's compelling. And the fact that it did it successfully in every movie, it created space for every superhero movie to come downstream of it. And every superhero movie downstream of it is in some form of conversation with it and benefited from its pioneering work, I think. Gets it extra points to cover for some of the mess that it made. 
but you put that together with it actually honoring the character of Superman in the process. And you said it earlier, the movie as a whole is greater than, or the sum of its parts. The sum is greater than the parts. Is that the phrase? The whole is greater uh, than the... Well, it depends, the it depends on the, which thing you want to say. <laughs> the individual parts don't all work, but they add up to something okay. more, more. The sum than, is greater than the parts. Or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts? Oh, dear. Yeah. Now, you, now, now we've lost yeah. it. What in the world just happened? The sum oh, is greater than the whole of the parts? There's a hole in the sum of the... There's a hole. There's a hole. There's, <laughs> there's a hole, a hole in, the bucket. in the sum of dear parts. Liza, dear Liza. <laughs> <laughs> the hole is greater than the sum of its parts. There we go. <laughs> that, that's correct. Anyway, Jake, you were saying. I think the whole being greater than the sum of its parts, the pioneering work of just the guts of we're doing it. Mm-hmm. We're doing a superhero movie, and it's not just any superhero movie. We're swinging for the fences. We're going for Superman, and we're going to try to make it feel grounded. We're going to try to make it feel like a movie that fits in the 1970s and that people can buy into in the 1970s. And then they sold it and people loved it and it worked and it created space for the entire superhero movie genre and the whole American hero story to shift from these sort of cowboy stories to these more fantastical comic book stories. It's a fulcrum and it's a pretty key piece. And so I think it gets bonus points for that, even though it doesn't quite hold up as a truly great movie in and of itself. Yep. I would agree with that. I would like to say I wrote down 10,000. It's right here. I knew you were going to say 10,000. After Ben said eight, there was nowhere you could go but 10. <laughs> I don't know what you would have said if Ben had, if you'd had to start, but. Well, you'll never know. My super genius of predicting how many crystals you guys want to predict what all. Here, I'll write down what I'm going to give it. And then now you guys can predict. 9,000. That's correct. <laughs> that wasn't hard at all. It wasn't hard at all. I was... <laughs> <laughs> I thought it might take you a second. Ah, no, false. <laughs> oh, after Jake's speech, I'm tempted to give it 9,000, but whatever, I'll be. You're locked, baby. Whatever. <laughs> Jake's speech is correct. In Jake's speech, you could almost bump it up to 11 or even 12. Like, mm-hmm. it is that important. Well, there's a difference. It depends on how you want to evaluate it. Right. As, as an actual experience to wa- sit there and watch, it's more of a six or seven or eight or something. But then you get done and you're really happy and you really do feel like it adds up to something a little bit more yep. than you just forget about Gene Hackman goofing around with the missile and you you remember the cool stuff and mm-hmm. you love it. I mean, I, I do think in addition to what Jake said, this movie does get a number of things right that a lot of movies that came after it would get wrong. I mean, you really have to go all the way to maybe Raimi or Nolan to see people pick up the thread. Like as soon as we get to Burton's Batman which we'll talk about this when we get there, but they're going to so heavily stylize everything. Like their solution to making a superhero fit into our world will be to change our world fund- so that our world fits a fantastical superhero, mm-hmm. make it a weird gothic kind of comic book world. And the fact that this movie does so much to actually just put Superman in the regular 70s world is something pretty special and something that... Hmm wouldn't be intuitive and wouldn't be cracked and there the sulkins are immediately going to ruin that it's immediately going to become camp starting with superman 2 and then getting worse as we go and so i think donner donner had something special he had a good idea i wish he'd been able to keep doing it but then we wouldn't have the goonies (laughs) 
<laughs> Yay. Yay. Goonies never say die. I could care less about the Goonies. But I guess I like the Goonies. Whatever. They're the Goonies. What are you going to do? I'd be sad if we didn't have the lethal weapon, I guess. I'd be sad if we didn't have the lethal weapon, too, in diplomatic immunity. Oh, so 9,000. Yes. With some scenes being, like, 4,000 and some scenes being 12,000. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, that's Superman. This may be the longest podcast we've ever done period and it may be the certainly the longest podcast on sanity at the movies i'd have to check that i think that is correct though so i hope you feel like you got your money's worth maybe our next podcast will just descend into pure camp and we'll edit out everything that's good and put a bunch of corny jokes in after the fact in any case until next time i'm here to fight for truth justice in the american way <laughs> I thought about uh, uh no I I never drink when I fly. I never drink when I fly. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> All right, goodbye folks.